Hello everybody and welcome to the Alien vs Predator Galaxy podcast, the original Alien and Predator podcast. I'm regular host Aaron Percival aka Corporal Hicks and joining me as always is Adam Zeller aka Ridgetop. And back for a film related thing because that's all he's interested in, he's a snob, is Omega aka David. I'm a moderator on, on the forums. And of course bringing up the rear as always because of the alphabet. That's the reason, nothing else. <laughs> yes, it's me, yes. That, that name you just called, it's Eric. I'm um, Xenomorphine on the uh, forum. That feels like the most awkward fucking intro <laughs> we've done in a thousand years. I was trailing up there, so yeah. That's me, those are both my names, and um, this is the podcast, so <laughs> carry on. Welcome to the podcast. I'm not even redoing that, that can stay. So... This is episode 147, Ooh, I do believe. Close to that 150. And I'm not even going to pretend there's no way this is going to be out on time for the anniversary because it's already been and gone. So this is our 10th anniversary retrospective discussion on the very, very divisive Prometheus. 10 years. Good God. That's weird to think about. Yeah, it's been 10 years since that movie. We are old. We are old now. <laughs> Pretty soon we'll be we'll be flying to space looking for our cure. Yeah, but I mean, AVP is coming up for twenty years before long, isn't it? So yeah, <laughs> yeah. wait until that gets there. And you, Adam, you fucking bummed me out now. <laughs> I'm sorry. Listen, I know I've railed on this movie in the past. Well, no, I wasn't on the podcast. It was you and Mikey, and I still didn't get a chance. I don't remember talking about it. I didn't get a it. chance to listen to that podcast in the lead up to this, but I do want to go back and listen to your original review podcast for that. I can't remember doing one. Are you sure we Pretty did one? sure you did. You did some leading up to it. I thought you you did like a Our Thoughts on Prometheus podcast or something. Me and you spoke to Gasker about it before Covenant came out. We did like a big review-y kind of episode then. Really? That was just on Prometheus? No, it's just on huh. Prometheus, yeah. yeah. My memory sucks, man. Do you remember that? Oh, I guess I'll have to go listen to that one too. Fills me with lots of confidence for this upcoming discussion, which Adam's memory sucks. So, like we structured the other ones, we'll just talk a little bit about perhaps the first time we saw it, if it's significant enough. But I'm more interested in how opinions change, if they change. Because Prometheus, I think, is arguably, its, it's development is far more interesting than... Well, no, not interesting, because the film's interesting in an infuriating way. But the development is more satisfying. There's just, there's a lot to this film. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll start us off, because Prometheus was the first big film I got to see for a pressy kind of thing for the website. Just thinking of it from that sort of shallow point of view, because it was a cinema in the middle of London, and I couldn't figure out how to get to the, into the cinema because it was in the middle of a roundabout. It was in a roundabout with no pavement or crossing or anything in to get middle? to it, and I eventually discovered in the middle of a roundabout, and I eventually discovered some tunnels under the road to get into it. But no, uh, and I, I sat behind Graham Norton. I think Eric should know who that one is. I don't I don't know if any of you guys will know who Graham Norton is. Like a chat host over here. I was literally sat right behind him while he was watching what it. What was his reaction? Did he make any weird commentary or did he just silently watch it? I genuinely cannot remember. 
is is the answer to that one. But I, I, I just always remember that about the press showing. But my reaction has never really changed to this film because this film frustrates the shit out of me. Like, I don't hate it. I don't loathe or despise the film or anything like that. But it frustrates me a hell of a lot because of the things it does, the things it doesn't, the things that could have been. You know, I love my could have been. I love to learn about the the development of the films and read the old scripts and see the concept arts. You know, with enthusiasts, as Eric prefers to call it, or, or nerds, as I tend to stick to. You know, we like to dive into that kind of stuff, and I find the could have been's immensely fascinating. But with this film, it's also a source of immense frustration for me because there's so much I would have preferred from those could have been's, and the film frustrates me for a lot of things. You know, it's not coherent or consistent within its the characters are infuriating to me which is a huge shame because the cast is phenomenal it's a brilliant cast in this film you know i always see a lot of people being like i hate this film i never wanted to know the answer of the space jockeys i wanted to know the answer of the space jockeys i wanted to see them explored on the screen i don't necessarily like the answer i got but you know i asked for this and that frustrates me as well. And the music is brilliant, but entirely inappropriate at times. And the editing on the film is is not great either. The delete, you know, some of the deleted scenes, not a massive deal, but would have fixed a lot of things. And the black goo, I hate in this film, but I love the concept. But it just infuriates me in this film. So that opinion has never changed. It's been the things that come after it that are good within their own rights for what they do with it. You know, I not counting Fire and Stone because Fire and Stone also frustrates me. But like uh, Life and Death and Alex White stuff and team Elite, you know, I enjoy what they've done with elements of the law that this has introduced. But the origins of it, no, frustrate me. Absolutely frustrate me. If I could think about the movies I've been the most hyped about in my life, Prometheus would be very high on that list. And I have to kind of blame Prometheus for that because it had such good marketing. This was in a time where I think viral marketing for movies wasn't super common yet, but it really... They put a lot of effort into it with this film, with the shorts that came out, with the website that came out surrounding the movie. And that trailer, man, that first teaser trailer and even the the theatrical trailer we got after that, one of the best trailers I've ever seen in terms of selling me on a movie. I'm on board. Hell yeah, I want to see this movie. There was always this anticipation for me, even as early as like the 2003 commentary with the DVD set where Ridley Scott asked the question, who was the guy in the chair? And that's something I was, no one ever explored that. And if I was to come back, I would want to do that. And then in the anthology Blu-ray, which came out in 2010, he writes a forward in the little booklet that came out with that saying he was gearing up to do his alien prequel. So when I got that set and saw that, I was so hyped for him to do his alien prequel. And then we started getting news around the same time we were looking forward to AVP 3 by Rebellion. And I was like, damn, this is moving forward. We're finally getting our alien prequel. This is awesome. And then I hear Damon Lindelof comes on board and I hear they're moving away from the alien aspect of it. Now, I'm. this is where I get worried for the first time because I considered the four horsemen of the cinematic apocalypse to be J.J. Abrams, Damon Lindelof, Robert Kurtzman, and, or no, Alex Kurtzman and Roberto Orsi, I think. Those, those four yeah, guys. That's, that's yeah, that's the right way. Everybody who works on Star Trek. Basically. Yeah, everybody who ruined that franchise. So thankfully, the only one who's ever gotten their tendrils into, into our franchises is Damon Lindelof. But you can't really fault him too much for what happened here because I think it's something a studio 
it wanted. And it's something that Ridley was very open to and went along with. Now, when we saw the first teaser, we very much could see, oh, yeah, this is in the Alien universe. Obviously, the first teaser kind of let us know that. And that was a bit of a relief to see that because up until this this point, they had been kind of shying away from the fact that this is a prequel and saying, well, it shares strands of DNA with the alien universe, but it's not really the prequel that it once was, which ended up being true, even if it is in the alien universe. And they talk about that a lot in the special features of the the Blu-ray. So again, I was very hyped for this film. Like I, I was studying illustration at the time, eventually moved to photography, but my drawing one final project based off the chamber that we saw. I think we saw a leaked trailer for it before the official one dropped. We saw loads and loads of leaked yeah. images and we got the tra- the leaked trailers towards December, December 2011. Yeah, I think. And so I was so intrigued by what I saw at the time with the ampules and the chamber. And it felt like this was kind of a revisitation of some of the earlier original concepts of, of Alien. And the film does do that in terms of it's a spaceship that lands on this planet that goes inside this pyramid that makes these Lovecraftian discoveries very much akin to the original concepts of Alien, not all of which were were fully explored in Alien. So again, I was just so hyped because I, I love everything surrounding that, like the original Dune by Alejandro Jodorowsky and, and everything surrounding that, moving on to a lot of the concepts for Alien that would be further explored in Prometheus. And so I remember seeing a midnight screening on IMAX for it. And I went with a friend of mine and he was less of a fan than me, but he was very enthusiastic about how hyped I was for it. And I watched the movie in IMAX 3D, which looked incredible. It was one of those films at the time, right after the Avatar 3D craze hit, where they filmed it with 3D cameras, which only a a few films really did. A lot of them were just transfer jobs. But this one was like really was on the set with 3D glasses, watching the dailies in 3D. And it was it was made with those specialized cameras. And so it looked incredible on IMAX 3D. It was so immersive. It was so impressive. But the alien fan in me didn't get what I wanted from an alien prequel. And it was something that I kind of had to process, I think, on the way home from the movie. I started thinking about it more in my head, like, oh, wait, this doesn't make sense. This doesn't make sense. Hmm, I'm not sure about that. So I was like, this is a movie I need to see again. You know, maybe this is like just deep and I need to like, I need to like see it again to understand it. But no, the second time I saw it, I was even, I was more frustrated with it. So I knew at that point, I'm disappointed with this movie. And that sucks because up until this point, I had never been disappointed with movie in the franchises. Now I know I'm, I'm pretty alone in that with you guys in AVPR probably. But for me, that was a new thing to be disappointed with a big movie in these franchises. And so, yeah, then I started worrying about all the lore implications for it. So it became very frustrating for me as well. And then the Blu-ray came out. And I think watching all the special features for it, that huge documentary, what did, what did they call that one, Aaron, that Charles de Lazarica did? Furious Gods. Furious Gods, that's right. A four-hour long documentary gave me more of an appreciation for the film. I think I found that more interesting than the film itself was that documentary. So through the years, it's it's kind of been a weird change in perspective because it went very much from this should run parallel to Alien and this should be its own thing and the sequel to this would would go off in a different direction to this is totally brought into the fold of Alien in a number of different forms of media. And so it's it's still kind of retroactively weird to watch this movie in that context with just how much it was integrated into Alien when that wasn't the premise of what they did with it at all. Maybe it's better for that. I don't know. 
it does make me think of like, where would the alien franchise be without Prometheus? Would it be as relevant again now as, as it's become? I don't know, because that was a very big deal. The movie was quite successful. It was the big return to sci-fi for Ridley Scott. And I think it's still one of the highest performing films in the franchise. I'm not mistaken on that. I've watched it a few times recently in preparation for this podcast, and I can still watch it and I can be entertained by it. But just like you, Aaron, there's things that still frustrate the hell out of me. Obviously, the dumb scientist is the first to come to mind, but there's a lot of just logical things within the story that don't make sense and lore elements that I just wish had gone in a different direction. And these were very significant lore elements that we had fans had looked forward to for so long that when they weren't what we wanted or even in the same ballpark of what we expected, I think that was hard for a number of fans, which which is why the movie ended up being so divisive. But it is a fascinating piece of science fiction film history, and I still maintain it probably would have been a much more effective film had it just been a standalone sci-fi. Now, that might have been even more painful for us if they had just done that, if it was still planned to be an alien prequel at some point, but then we wouldn't have the lore implications. But I don't know. I don't know. I do like how they've handled the prequel lore in other aspects of media, and we'll get into that. But for me, overall, it remains a disappointment, but it's an extremely impressive and beautiful film. Like, I used my old 3D TV functionality to watch it again in 3D recently, and I was like, wow, this looks so good in 3D. Like, they really just did an amazing job on that. So I think 10 years on, you can't really deny that it it has a very significant place in science fiction and, of course, in the Alien franchise. But is it a movie that will always be kind of a disappointment to me? Yes, but I think I can go back and watch it and appreciate it for what it is more now than I could then. Let's go back to 2012. I was a young fat guy in high school. And even then, I already had this way of processing information when it came to movies, which is I'm going to absorb as much information about the movie before watching it at the theater, because I'd rather be disappointed in the seat of my chair than in the cinema. So what happened was I followed the leaks and the pictures being released and the trailers and so forth. And there were there was this ambivalent feeling at the time, because one, I had heard of Scott wanted to turn the space jockey into a suit, which predates the movie of about 10 years, maybe, or something, because he turned to that idea, you know, the space jockey as a shell or a suit around the 2000s or something like that. He definitely saw Independence Day. So there was this, and then there was, you know, the beautiful stuff that was coming out. I distinctly remember the first official picture that we saw, which is, you know, Numi being swept away by the storm. I remember that. With a, with a, with a bag, which in the movie has, you know, the engineer head in it. And it was like, oh my God, this looks so much like Alien. And I'm like, wow, at least they're, you know, respecting the stuff that's gone before visually and stuff. And then I read the plot on Wikipedia and was like, uh, and then I saw, I mean, beforehand I saw the trailer and in the trailer, I believe, because, you know, there were the usual people, you know, going frame by frame and they saw the engineer in the movie. And that was the confirmation for me that, oh no, they're turning the space jockey into, into mission to Mars because I, I had seen mission to Mars beforehand, one of the worst experiences watching a movie for me. Because, goddamn, have you seen Mission to Mars? And it's even written by, you know, the, the Thomas Brothers, who gave us Predator and Predator 2. And it ends up being Mission to Mars. And, you know, Prometheus ended up being, you know, alien crossword uh, Mission to Mars. 
So I saw the movie in the theater and this is kind of embarrassing, but I felt, you know, I was young, again, very emotional. And I, I literally had to throw up in an alley after watching the movie. I felt physically sick. Wow. So I went on and, you know, did research on it because all my famous monster movie blog was already a thing by the time Prometheus came out. And I did research on it. And I discovered, you know, John Spite's conceit of the movie, which made me realize that they were missing the point of a lot of things. And the movie itself made an impression on me as in the visuals. Again, I agree with Autumn. The movie looks impressive on a photography and visuals, as in visual effects standpoint. I also like most of the creature designs. They're very, very cool. The idea behind being this abstraction and separation of the alien into different components, because the homepidae, or whatever it's called, or however you pronounce it, you know, sticks itself into your throat the way, you know, the facehugger proboscis does. And then the trilobite is essentially a giant facehugger, which harkens back to the original big facehugger, you know, the one with the springtail from the Giga drawing. So there's a lot of interesting stuff. And there's a lot of interesting ideas, but, you know, it made a bad impression on me at the time. So I rewatched it, I think, two weeks ago at this point with a friend in preparation for, you know, this podcast. And I saw it through the eyes of a grown-up guy who has gone through more movies, gone through more experiences, and better understands the genre and so forth. And I still hated it. <laughs> I still hated it because one popular concept is that people don't like Prometheus because they're alien fans. They're disappointed and they're portrayed as babies because they didn't like Prometheus or so sort. I remember the discussions on the forums, you know, all those people, you know, pressing the movie to no end, saying, oh, it makes so much sense because the face hugger in the original could... I remember this distinct comment about, uh, you know, the face hugger fitting perfectly or a human face. And connecting the alien to giant white people from outer space made sense logically those people it's their opinion of course but to me this is just not recognizing the pulp sci-fi elements in alien which are you know very much present in the story Donna Bannon wrote Alien with a 50s movie in the moment, you know, 50s and 60s movies in the moment. So there's a strong pulp element. So when you see, you know, the alien questions like, how can it interact with human DNA? You know, all this hard sci-fi stuff, essentially, they wanted to read Alien as hard sci-fi. Alien has never been hard sci-fi, nor will it ever be. So that's a moot point to me, of course, because you can read movies or however you want and have your own standards. And I respect that. Absolutely. I mean, Adam likes AVPR, and I haven't killed him yet. <laughs> so I watched it and, you know, trying to judge it as a movie and things like that. Because originally Prometheus was when, you know, the evil planets aligned for me. And I was just so pissed. The first time had been Starship Troopers 2, you know, and the second time was Prometheus. So I rewatched it. And um, the script is something. It's definitely something. I really, really don't like how John Spade's treats things as in characters because you know the stuff in the movie is not entirely space because we have the Lindelof rewrites but a lot of the space elements were included still one of those is the main character Nomi Rapas what's her name again in the movie Elizabeth Shaw in the movie, but got to defend Spates there because what remains of his is overall structure and certain overarching narrative and plot. A lot of the details that would come from Prometheus were Scott and yeah. uh, Lindelof. So I've got to, I've got to ask this because uh, I honestly don't remember. So I'm asking you: Is the 
I cannot get pregnant kind of storyline in the space travel. I don't remember that in spaces and I've only just reread it. Because the problem I have personally with space writing is that he writes... That, that, wasn't, that wasn't in Engineers from what I remember. Because the same, the very same concept is in Doctor Strange, which John Space also wrote. And, you know, John Space wrote one of the worst sci-fi movies of all time to me, which is um, the one with, with uh, Chris Pratt, Passengers. I think someone here likes it. I cannot agree with that. But, you know, I have a problem with him. I still haven't seen Passengers, but I've wanted to. You should. I enjoy it. It's okay. He did co-write Dune, which was really good, the new one. So Yeah, but Dune had Dennis Villeneuve at the helm. That's true. There's there's like a different context. I don't agree with the philosophy of turning what's alien into something more familiar because it reduces the scope of the narrative. When you watch Alien and you get to the space jockey scene, all I can feel when watching that scene is, you know, how big the universe is in the movie. You know, we're seeing the space jockey, we're seeing the derelict, and one of my favorite shots in the movie in Alien is when Kane drops down to the cargo or cave or whatever it is, because the movie doesn't make it clear whether it's, you know, a lower level of the ship or there's a cave beneath the ship. Because there were both versions in the scripts and they never, you know, quite decided on which. But there's this beautiful shot of Kane dropping down. And then you see that corner with some kind of uh, very, you know, faint light. And as a kid, I always wondered, what's in there? That's the philosophy of Alien. That's the horror philosophy of I showing you, but I'm not going to explain it to you. I'm going to show you the ghost, the monster, the skull, the skeleton, the fossil, whatever. But I'm not telling you about everything about it. And Prometheus did a U-turn. And I'm going to read the key quote on here because at the time in 2012, Spites did, you know, these interviews. And he said to Filmmaker Magazine, and I quote it, If you were trying to reach back in time for the history of the universe with glimpsing the original alien, you are inevitably concerning yourself with the affairs of non-human beings. This is what he says. But the deadly predator that is the true line of the alien franchise and the enigmatic dead alien giant that is at the great mystery at the beginning of Alien. These are interesting entities not fully explained, but to keep an audience interested in those things, it couldn't be abstraction. It couldn't be a purely alien story about things we can't relate to. Mm -hmm. It was going to have to be connected to our own story. Somehow the story of these creatures was going to have to be connected to the human story. Not just our history, but our fate come. I looked for ways to make those connections, and that's where I got interested. This is John Spade's 2012 Filmmaker Magazine. And do I need to comment on that? I mean, I guess I do because this is part of the about Prometheus, but this is missing the point, like by a thousand yard <laughs> radius. Because Alien is absolutely, it's horror, it's haunted house in space. And it completely misses that kind of, you know, mystery element because it explains everything to you. I don't know. Prometheus left some questions. <laughs> it left sure. some questions, but answered others in a very unsatisfactory way. Because when you turn Cthulhu into Space Vin Diesel, giant white person, that to me is the opposite of interesting. That is the opposite of creative. Because Alien was about the weird. It was about the surreal. Alien was designed by Ron Cobb and for the human element, you know, Ron Cobb, Chris Foss, and all those wonderful cyberpunk artists and concept artists. Ron Cobb had done, you know, the DeLorean from Back to the Future. He contributed to the Millennium Falcon. You know, the Millennium Falcon is essentially the bird 
of cyberpunk aesthetic in its popularization, because of course it was previous to the Millennium Falcon, but in the movies it was new. And Alien is a child of that stylistically when it comes to the human element. But the Alien element was completely abstract. It was giga. It was sexual. It was mysterious. And that's why it worked. Of course, there's a pipeline through all of this because the alien is humanoid. It can take traits from a human, which you had to explain a lot of things. But again, it's not hard sci-fi. I think this argument makes more sense if I make an, a comparison with this, another sequel, you know, Predator 2. You know, I like Predator 2. Everyone knows. But I like what it does with the Predator because we find out more about them. But there's nothing in Predator 2 that violates what we already know and violates what makes the character interesting. Come years and years later, we get Predator 2018, which explains everything <laughs> and explains it awfully because I want to remove the movie from my memory, but didn't they want to say that the Predators rip spines off because they want to take DNA or something? Yeah, spinal fluid, I think it was meant to be, but yeah. Spl spinal fluid. There's this obsession with bringing the unknown and the creative and the weird and the surreal. They're trying to explain something which didn't need to be explained. They could have just left it as it exactly. wants trophies and that's it. But they thought, no, we've got to explain it. Yes, and we've got to explain why the predator looks humanoid because, you know, we are influenced by different style sci-fi for example, Star Trek. Star Trek comes up with a great explanation for why the aliens in Star Trek. I feel like this is a whole other discussion in itself, though, David. I, I think we've we've run away from this quick intro. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'll continue later because I'm not done. <laughs> so, just to summarize, you were very disappointed at first. Yes. You had the glowing review of throwing up in an alley, and um, <laughs> it hasn't changed for you much. It has evolved, but it's certainly the root is the same. And Eric? Can you do it in less than 20 minutes, Eric? <laughs> okay, in terms of my impressions, okay, so we got to admit, and this is a weird kind of time now, because um, we have to say, cast your mind back, because not all fans that are now part of the fandoms will have necessarily been of age to have watched the AVP films when they came out. But we have to cast our minds back to, you know, the, the two films before this was the first AVP film, which, you know, it had entertaining moments, but there is a kind of a cheapness about it, blah, blah, blah. And it was a bit of a disappointment compared to the original Alien and Predator films. Then we had Requiem, and that was really hyped as it's going back to the roots. It's gritty. It's either going to get this dark stuff, man. And that was one of the most widespread, panned, universally almost detested films of either series there was. In terms of like the reaction, like that was what coloured the perception of all the forums, like you were going to discuss it, that was generally what you were going to get. So there was this downward trajectory. Then we heard about there was this film. And I think the first bit of news I remember, and I don't know if I'm guessing it was Chinese whispers at this point, but there was that first bit of news that they were going to remake Alien and that Ridley yeah. Scott's son-in-law was going to direct it. And we hadn't heard much about it, but then there was this sort of to and fro, and then it was, oh no, it's not a remake, it's a prequel. And they're trying to get Ridley Scott involved. And then we heard the news that Ridley Scott is now involved, and H.R. Giga was coming back. And for most of us, 
that made us sit up and take notice because we were like, they're paying attention. They're bringing back Giga and Scott. This is the magical, this is Team Rocket for the Alien series. And then a little bit onwards, we got what essentially has this link to Alien 3 because I think like Alien 3, whether you're a fan of this film or not, this is always going to go down as a film where the first trailer has stood the test of time. That first advert to this day is a brilliant advert. Alien 3, it was the on Earth, everyone can hear you scream. This one was the one where you had the sort of the alien ah, 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 sound and you you had a tone. And this is what I don't get about the people who say, oh, you don't like Prometheus because it's all you weren't were explosions and blah, blah. And I was like, no, I wanted what we had in this advert. You had tension. You got a feel of this is feeling gigerish. This is feeling, this is some dark stuff. It sold an entirely different film. It did. I mean, some people say that with The Phantom Menace as well. That had a very different tone of advert compared to the film. But then we got finished product, Prometheus. Now, just in the run-up to Prometheus, I had a friend who, now he's passed away, unfortunately, Damien, and he had never seen an alien film. So I said, okay, there's a Prometheus that's coming up. They might do some callbacks and stuff. So just so you're up to date, let's give you the first and second film. So he came around to my place. He watched the first one and the second one for the first ever time. And he jumped in all the... He'd seen loads of horror films. And he, I said to him, well, it might be desensitized to you now, but let's see how it goes. He jumped in all the right parts. He found all the right parts that were disturbing. He found them disturbing. He got the highs. He got the lows. Everything worked for him. And it was like, it proved to him, this is a timeless classic franchise. So... Me, him, and a group of other friends that I was with a drama group at the time, we all went as a group to watch. I think I was aware by that point about them changing the space jockey thing, so I think I was kind of forewarned about that because that would be the big game changer. But yeah, I watched through it and I remember thinking at the end, oh, that's it? Because it felt once all is said and done, you had sure go off to the sunset and we were promised this is the one that's going to give you all the answers. You don't give any, get real answers from it. You're left with a lot of not thought provoking questions, but you're left with a lot of what the fuck questions. That's a great quote there, Eric, actually. That's how I felt. And it sure goes off on a magical train ride to Engineer City. And you're thinking, oh, this feels like episode one, the pilot episode. What's happened here? We were given this impression that even the set design, it was all going back to Alien. But a lot of it, because it felt clean, everyone was using holograms, even little handheld things. And it didn't feel like Alien. It felt more like... And you have to remember, this is 2012. So at that point, Mass Effect 3 had come out. This felt like Apple iPhone slash Mass Effect set design, where everything like it was metal, but it looked a bit plasticky. Everything was white. Everything was smooth contours and stuff. And I was like, OK, but let's go to the, the alien city where this is going. Let's see some Giga. And it turned out this was a deliberate choice. They removed the bio from Biomechanical. Everything looked kind of synthetic and artificial. It looked like a warehouse. It didn't look like a giga chamber. I wanted to go back, as David said, to that egg chamber that Kane descends into. Something like when we had Destroying Angels, we recently talked about that, and they had the architecture. They 
got it. They got that aesthetic. Why couldn't they have brought that aesthetic to this? But they didn't. Okay, I'm waiting for the disturbing shit to kick in. I'm waiting for the psychosexual stuff. We had that quote from Ridley Scott saying, we're going to do worse than Lambert in this. I was thinking, okay, let's get it. I, I want to see, give us those chills. Chill us to the bone. This is your chance, Ridley Scott. You might hate science fiction, but we know you can do this. Turn this on its head. Subvert everything. Give us 1979 Giger and Scott. And the problem was, as it turned out, it was not only Giger had pretty much been sidelined and there was that issue with he there was the cinematographer saying he was saying he wasn't going to be involved if Giga was being involved blah 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 okay Giga was sidelined so you didn't get those kind of creature designs and then it turned out that you could really tell someone whose background is not in writing had had a very strong influence on this which turned out to be Scott and he'd been pretty much dictating to Lindelof a lot of stuff and there were points where Lindelof did try to say, eh, or this has been done in this other stuff. And according to him, he said Ridley Scott looked at him like he'd been slapped with a dead fish, I think the quote is. And then he just carries on. He just bulldozes on. And as we've said before, Prometheus is love it or love it. It's what happens when it's like George Lucas, when Ridley Scott is just surrounded by people who either don't tell him something is wrong or they tell him something is wrong, but then they back down immediately. There was no counterbalance like you had back in the days of Alien, back in the days of Legend, back in the days of various films. Just before you go on, you said about Giga being deliberately sidelined because of the cinematographer? There was apparently a disagreement with someone Ridley Scott had worked with for ages, and there was a disagreement with if Giga comes here, because I think it was to do with how he was traveling, because he, he was afraid of planes or something. I know he didn't want to fly to Pinewood Studios. There, there was something about he didn't want Giga involved because it was travel or it was something to do with Giga was going to set up all his workshop. On In regards to Prometheus? That's how I remember it. That's why Giga was not fully involved. You're going to have to cite sources there, mate, because that is something I've never heard yeah. of. It's something I'm going to go back and look up, but that's how I remember it. He was invited to do murals, and I think he did a couple of creature sketches while he was there, just off the cuff. But as far as his involvement was ever concerned, as far as I know, it was only to do the murals. Okay. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm going to go and read that up now, but I, that's from what I remember. I remember reading stuff. There was a disagreement. I remember, I remember Giga was more of a consultant on the movie than someone who they deliberately, you know, hired as a concept artist because I remember the stuff he did was mostly, you know, the Deacon. Yeah. I remember the Deacon sketches, but they were done in the midst of the process and they chose the Stephen Messing design later mm. on. So it was more of a consultant, you know, to say, hey, everything is okay because we're doing this right because you're in here, but more than, you know, someone who's actually getting input yeah. creatively into the movie. That's the way I remember it. Okay, but as I say, I'll, I'll read back on that. But in, in terms of like the, the creature design, the, the stuff Giga delivered in the original Alien, that side of it was sidelined. That Giga-esque stuff was, you know, is that component 
the stuff that replaced it, it felt very much like a very different world. And the whole point of this was to go back to that world, that aesthetic, that mood. And we did not get that mood. With that said, I do remember it having what visuals it had were absolutely stunningly gorgeous to look at. And you do need to see it in 3D. I'm fortunate enough to have a 3D TV. I've put it, the Blu-ray in 3D on there and it, it gave me back that feeling of, wow, this... I feel like I can reach out and touch that waterfall, which you don't get as much when it's just the 2D version. So if you sit in its native intended presentation style, it's it's worth to rewatch. Even if you don't like the film, it's worth it. But in terms of what it delivered, it's one of those things where you say it really needed to be written better. Because the strength with, say, Aliens, virtually everything about it that happens in Aliens, it's crucial to the storyline. If it isn't a crucial plot point, then it feeds into things. And there's this pattern, is a wave to it, and you can see everything came together. In Prometheus, I remember feeling like when you're doing a video game, but you're doing like side quests and there's characters going off doing stuff and, and then they do their thing. And I think to myself, why did they do that? Or what's the like the engineer's head? They try and trick its nervous system into waking up. And she says, let's do that. And the other person, I'm thinking, no, no, no. What, why, why do you want to do this? Is there going to be like a debate now? Maybe it's going to be that Jurassic Park moment where you've got Jeff Goldblum's character saying this is, this is something you, you think you can do. You didn't stop to think if you should. But the other character going, yeah, yeah, let's do that. And they get it to do that. And then they get, oh no, we shouldn't do this. We shouldn't do it. And by the time it explodes, I think, why did you give me that scene? It, it doesn't do anything. And there are a bunch of scenes like that. So at the end of it, you, you're given these callbacks these talking points. You, you see the equivalent of an egg chamber, but it's these geometric urns. And it makes you feel like it's it's a bit of a... It feels soulless. It feels like you the, the, there's something missing from it compared to... It doesn't... Nothing about the film feels lived in. And when I say that, I don't just mean the spaceships. I mean the characters. They don't feel like lived-in characters. Everyone, with the exception of Idris Elba's character, and I twigged today this is the reason why if I had to choose someone to like, I would say it's his character. Everyone in this film fucking bitches sarcastically. Everything is a sarcastic response or they're bitching. You have you have Holloway at one point when he's saying it in the, on the film, it reads like in the script, he probably asks David, how are your lessons going, David? But you have the character saying, how are your lessons going, David? And he puts on a silly voice and it's like he's talking down to David. What are you doing? And lots and lots and lots of interactions between characters. It's this bitchy sarcasm. And it makes you feel like the film's set up. Vickers says, oh, basically saying, everyone's at the elite of their game. You're all professionals. And it's not just nobody acts like a professional. It's that everyone's acting like college students. Nobody feels like, where's the adult in the room? Nobody knows who to report to. There's no chain of command. 
everybody just doing their own shit and they're meant to be scientists and they're like, oh, well, give me the thing. And public, what? Oh, you want that? For yeah, give me the thing. I'm going to do a carbon dating read. And it's like the other person doesn't realise, okay, you've done that. What's it going to give? And it doesn't contribute anything to the story. And it's just one weird character interaction after the other. It's not like in Alien where they feel like real people. You can say blue collar, but, you know, they feel like real people who have been through shit and they're kind of bitching about what they usually get up to but it's not this same sarcasm and teenage bitchiness in it so i think from there that's what kind of puts me on edge a bit when i'm watching because even an alien when you're getting character interactions at least you're like they're feeling compelling they're not just making you think I don't want to see this character anymore just do it have a creature kill them and then there is that thing at the end which really stayed with me after I'd seen the film, which was Wayland has that culmination. Everything about the film is leading up to this thing. Oh, there's an engineer, it's still alive, and you had Holloway saying, yeah, but I really wanted to talk to them. And it's like they keep on feeding you this thing. There is an engineer. They are going to talk to him. They're going to wake him up. The engineer isn't dying when it gets hit. It stands up and it listens to them. What do we get? It just flips out. It decides, right, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you, fuck you. And you, what? What was it doing? You could have had something genuinely thought-provoking, and you don't. And we know the reasons why for that is because it had reasons in the space script. Scott and Lindelof screwed it up. And for whatever reasons, they decided just have it flip out. And that really stayed with me. So when, you know, I'd watched it and my feeling was one of, it feels like part one, but it also feels like they've wasted these opportunities. We haven't even felt anything really for the characters, let alone falling in love with them, but it just feels like one big wasted opportunity. I didn't hate it, but I did kind of feel Scott, Giga, massive set design. And I just felt like it's a deflated balloon. But that's why a thing where people say, oh, you don't like this film? It's too cerebral for you. It's too intellectual. And I think it's not too intellectual. I just, I can see the flaws and I just don't like it. I hate when people say that. I absolutely fucking loathe it. The arrogance that that statement encapsulates is incredible. Absolutely fucking incredible. So your opinion hasn't changed, I think. Uh, it's, it's changed. As I said, when I rewatched it in 3D, it did recapture that visual side, the landscapes, that side of stuff. And when you see David wander into the, the secret ampule chamber and the, I think it's called Aurora, you know, the, the planets in the holograms, right. all that stuff works beautifully. And when you rewatch it in 3D, I'm reminded, ah, these are the parts. Yeah. If you haven't watched it since the cinema in a big screen, you do kind of just concentrate on the structural thing. But when you come back to it, and this was after several years, when you come back to it in 3D, you do go, oh, yeah, give yeah. me more of that. Kind of does change, but it took... I can time. still enjoy the visuals just on a normal telly. Yeah, but when you see that, it really, there's just something, you feel like you've sunk into water, the same yeah. water, just from the, the orary scene in particular in 3D was one of the ones I watched when I put the functionality back on my TV. And like, wow, like that scene, as well as the, the scene of landing, the scene where the Prometheus is approaching a planet, 
just the sense of scale that gives you and the depth and the immersion, the 3D aspect of that movie, I think is, is part of like, they made it with that intention with that in mind. And so I do feel like the film is missing that sort of level of immersion. And that's why it took a while for my opinion of the movie to sink in was because I was it was spellbinding. But at the same time, I noticed the same things you were talking about, Eric, this is more of a stone aesthetic, this is less of a biomechanical Mm. aesthetic, this is not what I was hoping for, which an incredibly silly, deliberate intention. At least when it came to Covenant, they sort of acknowledged this. They were going to build into the biomechanical aspect of the franchise as part of the narrative. That is what they said when they were working on Covenant. But with Prometheus, it was, we didn't want to do Giga again, which is fucking, again, the arrogance. Not so much the the viewers, the, the fans shitting on people who didn't like it but the 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 arrogance of of arthur max there i think is that the production designer yeah that was the guy i was thinking of arthur max i heard there was some disagreement between them i never heard disagreement but it was very we didn't want to do what had already been done because how do we match up to that as well there was a lot of concern of we don't want to piss the fans off but we don't want to do it again but how do we equal those expectations and the answer is not do the same shape. Look, I appreciate the fact that we stuck to some of the same, not quite aesthetic, but the same design language, the same shapes. Yeah. That stone corridor with the holograms in, it was kind of like the inside of a spinal column. You know, the, the shape of, of the, the actual corridor. And there's a lot of that in the film still, yeah. a lot of Giga's shapes. The, the ribbing columns, the, they still kind of look like ribs, but it lacks the bio element. It lacks the Giger feel. It still has yeah. those notes of Giger in the ampule chamber and the pilot's room at the end. Or the juggernaut sets, you know, yeah. because it's essentially the same one yeah. redressed over But over it again. lacks the Giger feel to it. Mm-hmm. And it misses something for it. I remember this thing. I don't remember if it was from the Covenant production or the Prometheus production, but weren't there problems like legally? That was Covenant. That was Covenant. Yeah. Because because Covenant came after Giga. Yeah, so it was problems with the estates trying to use things like the Lee concept and stuff like that. I do remember an idea that was that, that could have been interesting, which is this thing that you, you guys are talking about. You know, the Giga without the bio, which is accurate because when you say you know the juggernaut interiors and you see the derelict interiors, they're way different in feeling because the juggernaut feels more pristine. And I think it was the intention. The idea was the derelict looked that way because it was left to rot or something. I remember reading this. Can you confirm? I don't know if it was quite that. I mean, I think there was always kind of an intention that the derelict feel like it was a ship that was grown. I know there were a number of artists who worked on Prometheus, and they mentioned this in the behind the scenes documentary where they say we kept trying to go towards Giger, but they kept telling us no on that. But I don't think there's ever been like a definitive reason why they turned away more from the Giger aesthetic. And it's all the more frustrating because Giger was involved, but his involvement amounted to just some sketches and Scott comments on it saying, oh, we just had to move on. He wasn't working at our pace. It's the same deal with Alien 3. I'm like, well, he's HR Giger. Slow down a little bit. But that's just the way that filmmaking works. It's, it's even sillier because they got, I forget his real name. He was, I think it was a Russian, um, Eastern European guy. 
Goodlin. Goodlin, yeah. It was his handle, for want of a better word. But, you know, he still had more of a mechanical approach to, to the aesthetic, but it still looked very... There was some bio in there as well. You know, they had this guy on hand. He was working on the film, but they still lean away from that look into very obvious natural rock kind of appearances. I mean, I find the pyramids super fucking frustrating because it is the Harkonnen castle. You know, it is Giga's Harkonnen castle from Dune with a little bit of that boo-beg silo that I love so much in there. But it's a fucking eroded face on top of this indistinguishable stone dome that lacks any sort of impact that it would do if we were to see that Harkonnen castle. God fucking Lord, they waste. Ah, it's one of those it's things. A positive one, right? <laughs> it's like I said about finding this film so frustrating because it's nearly there. Yeah. It's nearly there, but they staff it all on. away. How much more impressive would that thing have been? Uh, the film have been if we got this big 3D thing, and especially because the film makes so much use of using unused elements from from Alien and and from Dune. You know, it would have been so much more impressive sat there with this fuck off massive IMAX screen with your 3D glasses on, and you see that skull more obvious than it shows us in the stupid film yes. up there. Ugh. This brings me to a particularly funny kind of setup payoff in the movie, which is when they first approach this structure, you know, the silos or pyramid silo, whatever. With Can't call them pyramids. It still does it in the script yes. and in the design stuff. It's not a fucking pyramid. The, the big vault, warehouse, whatever you want to call it, with the Harkonnen spine and head on top, you know, all stone. And then at a certain point in the movie, and they think it's when, yes, it's, it's when the storm strikes. And then suddenly the face is a skull, you know, and the movie wants to tell you, you know, this is when shit is getting bad. But I found it so on the nose for some reason, because it is a more pulp kind of language and the movie doesn't want to be pulp. It wants to be smart and, you know, looking down on you, which is one of the big problems I'm going to talk about later on. Well, that was one of the divisive aspects of the film that you had people arguing about. And that's one thing you can say to the film. People were talking about it a lot. To be fair to Ridley is what he said. You know, he said he didn't want to give you all your answers. He wanted you to come out of the film and talk about it and think about it and argue about it. So he got his fucking... He got his wish, but there was a conflict in terms of people accusing the movie of being too pretentious versus too intellectual for you. I was very much on the side of this movie is it thinks it's smarter than it is, and it is too Damn pretentious. Right. But I mean, going back to the bio stuff, it's not just a matter of, oh, I'd like to see the bio, the organic stuff return. It's the fact that the story revolves a great deal around biology and organic and genetic engineering. That's a big part of why it's felt like, oh, well, if you're going to do it, make it look like a laboratory or something. And they didn't do that. They made it look like some sort of, they're doing biological warfare in a church but it's a church of stone and slabs of metal. Church of Bone and Gore would have been interesting. I, yeah, I would have liked to see some more sort of Hellraiser-esque kind mm. of thing. But even there, I mean, when I talked earlier about the, the, the it's got some weird sort of incomprehensible... I do remember one of the things that I was looking forward to it was, you. I've said this before, you had this big push about this is going to be like 
ancient astronaut territory. And I thought, oh, wow. Because whatever you think about that theory, when you see some like landscape, and we've seen some of this in the build up to Predator, Prey, where you have people posting some artistic landscapes of Native Americans and flying saucers. Some of it's really inspiring and well done. And there's some great artistic stuff with like the pyramids and Egyptian stuff like they toyed around with for the first AVP film. And I thought, wow, Ridley Scott, so long as he gets the right script, I'd love to see what he does does with this canvas. But what we got were these, like you had that flashback in the start and you've got an engineer, literally he's down in a nappy and he drinks from this bowl and he disassembled. I remember watching that and I was thinking, that's not what an ET intelligence would do. That feels like a like a tribal person who's watched genetic engineering and they're trying to emulate it. Why don't they just have like a dead body dump it in the water or something? You had all this ritualistic stuff that made no logical sense. There's a lot of stuff that doesn't make logical sense where you watch the film and then you it's like Adam said, you, you think start to think back and you go, huh, wait, what? That's the problem with the movie, is when you think it's true. Yeah. But you did have a lot of this bio, organic, biological injury. And then when you go to the set, it's all just pure mechanical. Yeah. But with the ancient astronaut theory you mentioned, even that is very confusing because you're like, well, the engineers were here tens of thousands of years into our history, giving us star maps to their weapons facilities. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like what? Yeah. How does that make any sort of sense? Or like, here's the place if you get too advanced and go here, we'll just kill y'all. See, I kind of like that, though. But they were planning to do that anyway, 2,000 true, years into true. the past. So but then there was like, like that whole thing about, oh, maybe they got pissed off we killed Jesus because Jesus was one oh, of them. Man. Can you imagine if they Here we go. in the movie? Here we go, space Jesus. <laughs> the problem is it's the same, you know, what one of you went off on this on your monologue, I can't remember who it was, about people not telling Scott no anymore. Yeah. And that's also one of the things I was listening to his commentary. You know, one of the things he talks about in that is he's fucked off of people questioning him. He talks about this I in the commentary that, yeah. where he's like, look, I think I've got to the point where I've made enough successful films that you can all just fuck off and leave me yeah. to it. And it's like, that's the problem. Yeah. You are not a writer. Bates and Lindelof both sort of talk about it respectfully. But, you know, to the point where it was constantly hovering over the shoulder and contributing things, Spates would be forced to go back and rework elements to bring in this disparate thing that Ridley had thrown at him. And that is, a you can feel that as a problem throughout the script because there's a, a lack of cohesion and a bit too much going off. Even in Spates' script, David obviously hates the guy, but I really, really like Spates' older scripts. But I still have a problem with there being too much going off in them. And you can feel that being... Not focused enough. Yeah, there's there's no focus. We'll have the proto-aliens, we'll have the normal aliens, but let's also have this mutant alien thing. We'll also do the meaning of life thing, uh, but we'll also have this terraform thing. There's too much going off in those scripts, mm. and I respect the desire to bring it in with Prometheus and bring it in with Lindelof, but it's still it's still there. They strip out a lot of the creature complications, not complications, redundancies, I guess, you know, because you had the three different versions of the alien in, in Spaces thing. And they strip that out to this disparate relationship between everything. But it's it's all essentially the same thing in terms of being related to the black goat. But there's still so much of this cramming ideas and concepts into Prometheus that doesn't allow things to work. 
just to reinforce that point, the other thing I found in terms of the focus thing and these individual disparate things, when you compare it to Alien, the space jockey stuff works so well because they go to the derelict, they have that stuff go on, they go back to them stromo and it keeps you wanting more. And you rewatch the film because you want more. In this one, there is that issue where they don't just go to Space Jockey Central, they go there, back to the Prometheus. Back to there, back to the Prometheus. Back and forth. And you even have, you have Firefield and Milburn, the two characters who left early, they never even make it out of the thing. So they're actually left there. And then you have that weird scene where the captain, Janek, I think his name is, he says, oh yeah, there's this motion tracker thing with another life form there. Oh well, never mind. See you in the morning. I'm going to go get laid. Well, and, and the thing as well is, like, he asks them where they are, and he's got a map right in front of him. Yes. <laughs> you feel like it's a practical joke that gone wrong. Yeah. And we, we've had this reading for, I don't know, a good 30 minutes or so, but with, I thought I'd bring it up now. I think what you what we are talking about right now is the fact that this movie, and I'm saying this my own way, is an unhappy marriage between wanting to be intellectual and... You know, the more pulp stuff. Because, again, when you think of Prometheus and you think, you know, the aesthetic of it, plot of it, the script of it, all I can think about is a heavy metal comic, the, the very pulp elements. And then the movie wants you to be looked down upon. You know, he looks down on you and saying, yeah, I'm smart. And this is like philosophical. And I think Eric made a fucking awesome point before when he talked about the cocked interactions, feeling like snarky, edgy teen sarcasm. Everyone's an asshole in this movie. Yeah. Everyone is an asshole in the movie, which is like um, exaggerating something we had before because dry humor has been part of the franchise since the beginning. You remember the banter between Parker and, and replay or the, the fantastic, you know, minimalistic friendship between Parker and Brett. That's always been part of the franchise, you know, and this brings to me to one bullet point I wanted to make. It must feel like your God has abandoned you. This is like the worst script line I've ever heard in anything ever. And I'm including Godzilla Final Wars or Starship <laughs> Troopers 2 or Mega Shark versus Giant Octopus. I'm including all of them because it's understandable because David is this kind of edgy character. You know, he's the angsty son who wants their parents dead, which is interesting. This is a Greek mythology kind of thing and they draw it and they draw from Greek mythology a lot. The engineers are supposed to be, you know, kind of classical statues and there's a lot of Prometheus, again, Prometheus. The name of the movie is from the myth. And they kind of abstractize it. They sci-fiize the, the myth. Only they do it in a incompetent manner. It's this kind of, again, I'm trying to do this very edgy, very intellectual thing when everyone looks down on everyone else. And I like the movie, this is on religious people and science people. You know, the, the, the brief scene is excellent in this regards because you have this another real piece of walk of dialogue, which I really, it really grinds my gears. Which is when, you know, race Paul Melbourne, you know, the biologist says, so you're going to just ox or whatever, 300 years of Darwinism, which is by itself, you know, if you're trying to be serious, you cannot say that because a serious biologist would never say Darwinism because Darwin is the root of the theory of evolution, but it's well beyond that. And Nuvi Rapaz says, because it's what I choose to believe. And, it, and it's supposed to be this grand, uh, and there's the theme song. I hate the theme song. It's this kind of hopeful 
pop sci-fi kind of team based on a few notes and it plays in the most inappropriate parts of the movie. So there's that. I think we we're talking about this, this kind of disjunction of intentions between... Just before I forget, because I knew it was going to come up and I wanted to make sure it was brought up as well. David said about Milbourne being a biologist and a lot of people like to shit on him in this film because he's the biologist not reading hostile signals from creatures and stuff like that. In the commentary, Scott called him an entomologist and if I'm not mistaken, is that not the study of bugs? Yes, entomology study bugs, and we get a lot of entomology visually in Covenant because yeah. there's a lot of like beetles. He he was specifically into bugs. That was his thing. You know, he doesn't know space snakes. But they don't set that up Cobras. in the movie. They call it biology. Yeah, I, I wanted to bring that up because I thought that was fucking hilarious. It is, as a matter of fact, it is because in the famous scene of the Hamepidae. Hamepidae, I love that design. It looks great, but the scene is so silly because of two reasons. The Hamepid design frustrates me. It's a chestburster that's kind of supposed to look like a face hugger and also function kind of like a face hugger. It's one of those ones where we're like, I'm desperate to get rid of Alien, but I want to keep Alien, but I want to merge things together. That's an interesting question, because as I mentioned before, the creatures in this movie are an abstraction and separation of the alien and its essential components. It is a parasitoid. It has acid for blood and kills people, I guess. You know, that's the, the five-field guy. And the Hamepidae is like an cross between the facehugger, because the proboscis that goes inside the person, and the chest person. And this is like, visually, it, it's telling you that it's not there yet. It's a version of what they're going to do later, which is the alien. This was the intention you know, on Prometheus, that the black goo is somehow the source of the alien. Which I like. You see the deacon, you see the deacon on the murals. And the scene is silly for so many reasons, because one, I think Vickers is directly quoted in the movie as saying that the expedition is worth a trillion dollars or something, something stupidly high. And, you know, you bring the pothead to the trillion dollar expedition. Again, this is fine because Fifield, I actually like the aesthetics of Fifield because, again, heavy metal. You know, it's cyberpunk. I like it. The problem is, in that scene, is they were stoned. You know, the subtext, not so sub, is that they're stoned. And so you get Melbourne, who's a biologist. And, you know, I'm also a biologist. Now, I also get stoned. But never in my mind would I, especially if I am an expert entomologist, because bugs, you know, insects, they have a lot of defensive display. You know, mantises have defense mechanisms. The Hamepidae is rightfully associated to a cobra because of the flops, you know, the hood. That's clearly a display of defense, uh-huh. of threat, because I'm feeling, in me, the animal, I'm feeling threatened. You, the biologist, you know, should back off a little bit, also because I'm an alien creature you've never seen before. And then he goes in and goes, yeah, that scene was frustrating because they so could have easily survived. And and you can like you can have the death of curiosity like you did in the original Alien and do it well. But when something is so obviously threatening and they're in a room full of these vases and they're like, let's shelter here for the night with the black goo everywhere that we know nothing about. And then they both die in a fashion that is, again, meant to evoke the original Alien, but feels like a parody of it. You almost hear Benny Hill music playing. Exactly. 
it's a scene which demands them to be stupid in order to work, which is, is itself a flaw because there are so many other more realistic ways it could have gone. Like maybe it does the threat display and maybe Milburn has common sense and he goes, right, okay, back off. And we've got to keep eye contact because we don't know how fast it is. Let's back off. And they don't see the second one is behind them and that attacks yes. and then everything goes to hell because that's chaos. It's believable. This one is a no, no, no. Come on, darling. Come on. He's flirting with death, literally, but he's doing it stupid. And he's the one who is not having drugs. No, he is. Firefield's on drugs. Only Firefield has him in his respirator. Yeah. Milburn is the one who's not influenced. And the thing that makes me sad there as well is part of, you know, we all talk about the marketing and how effective and great the marketing was. And that whole well, not the whole sequence, not the lead up to it, but, you know, the the death and all the noises and stuff like that, that was released as an audio part yes. during, during promotion. And we all listened to it and we're like, holy shit, this sounds fucking immense and intense. And The actual scene where it's attacking him and it's slowly constricting, that is actually, that's nicely done. It's just how it comes about. That's what mm. makes you guys, oh, they deserve to die. But when it's happening, that's really powerful. Yeah, the film is so stupid. I even remember people like comparing the scene, as Adam was saying, this is very similar to, you know, Kane looking into the egg. But there's two problems that set the scene apart from that. Because one, Kane is a space trucker, not a scientist. And two, this movie wants to be smart. So why do you, you know, portray the scientist as this big fucking bubbling idiot? And I feel like that's another problem I have with the movie. It is very anti-science while being anti-religious too, because it's essentially telling Christians, fuck off. It's giant Spain's Vin Diesel. It's not God. You know, it's not the God of the old or the new Testament. I don't know if it's quite, because at the end she asked for her cross back and he's like, Mm -hmm. after all this, you still believe, do you? Like, I didn't see that as David like insulting. I saw it as he was kind of impressed. Oh, no, Um, he was. He was insulting her. Like, David is dissing on people all the time in the movie. As you oh, for sure, for sure. He There's, is. like, suckers all the time. I quite rightfully understand why David wants to kill humanity with the way he's treated in this film. <laughs> yes, but... David the gets the easiest line delivery, David does. It's Line delivery? You you are dissing on Fazbender. Yeah, he he really oh, chews you fuck the you scenery. Fuck right <laughs> no, that's direction. He chews the scenery to hell in a lot of his stuff. He really does. Fassbender and David is easily the best thing about this film, in my opinion. Yes. He was a fascinating character. I mean, the movie opens with him on the ship and seeing him on his own for a while was an interesting aspect of synthetics in the alien universe that we got to like just spend some time with one of them for a second. Like that was very interesting. Now, before I forget, you brought up the the alien mural uh, behind the giant head in the the ampule chamber, Aaron. And I know we had kind of a disagreement on this because you thought it was alluding hey, to... Hey, David the said right then. David said it as well. I know. Well, he was too. But I actually looked it up in this fantastic art book, which I highly recommend by Titan Books, came out shortly after the film. And it actually did help me to appreciate the film a bit more and frustrated that a lot of what was in here we ultimately didn't get. I wish those books would give artists credit though and context. Oh, yeah. And- they all need it. Like, not even in the back, I don't think. They have some acknowledges to a few of the No, but the specific art should be labeled every time, and yeah. there should be context I, in there as I the agree. going off. But they do show that sculpture on the set being put together, 
and it says, Inside the pyramid, the Prometheus crew find what appears to be an altar, seen here under construction at Pinewood Studios as well as in the final film, with as its centerpiece an arch-shaped relief of a pointy-headed Giger-esque creature, which appears to have been crucified. Quote, That's the DNA homage to the alien Giger creature, says Max. It's kind of a homage to him. They look at it and speculate briefly about it, but it's not very clear what it is. So, yeah, and I did love that relief in the film. Like, there's some aspects of art design in this movie that that are great. But the problem is you can have mystery, but you still need to have some of the aspects you show make some logical sense. Like in Alien, yes, it was very mysterious. We didn't know where they came from. There was a big Lovecraftian part of that film that was left unexplained. But when we started to see the alien and how it behaved, there was a logical aspect to it with its life cycle. And this one, it's like... Well, it was based well, on nature. Why is the cobra going into this guy's mouth? Does it just want shelter like this is a very convoluted way of getting to a deacon like how the hell did this happen well that so. and it, it had nothing to do with the deacon as well that is a that's another reason i always found the mural stuff frustrating as, as lovely as it is an, as an art piece you know it's great to see the references to the old giga artwork that original life cycle stuff that he did and there being the deacon up there it was an immensely convoluted way of getting to the deacon in the first place you know a tiny little bit had to be ingested the dude had to go and do his missus she had to get pregnant with i was going to be more crude there she had to go and let's see you being proper british go and give birth to a squid that i fucking i hate the early version of it it's so uninspired that then has to turn into a big face hugger analog that then has to go and infect an engineer. It's a very convoluted way of getting there, which is why I don't like how the pathogen, the black goo is treated in, in Prometheus because it's just to do whatever the fuck we need it to do button. But it's why I like the way it's been handled in subsequent media because I do like it being related to the alien. I like the fact that alien related things come out of it, but I like it to be more structured. <laughs> I like it to be a bit more logical as to the alien things coming out of it. But the the way it is in Prometheus, it does whatever the fuck we need it to do. Design be damned. Like, why the fuck would little flatworms turn into something that looked in, like a chestburster and a facehugger and behaved like a facehugger but didn't infect anybody? But then just so we can do the gag with, with our actresses, because it'd be fun. It'd be a fun throwback to Alien. Pretty much. It's just a jump scare moment, that's all. It's funny how I went into this podcast saying, no, guys, this is the anniversary podcast. We need to, like, celebrate the anniversary of the film and not be too negative. And here we all just are all tearing it to shreds. When you start to dig into these things, it's just too immensely frustrating. And it's divisive as well. You know, I fucking love Fazbender. I fucking love David. And, you know, Eric's giving him some shit yeah, earlier the there. Yeah. I don't blame Fazbender. I blame Scott for that. I blame Scott for making him too yes. moustache twirly. David could have been more interesting for me if, A, he'd been more logical, not so emotional. Because I've said before, my problem with David is we're constantly reminded he's a robot, but he's portrayed like a psychotic human. That's not till the second movie, though. Like You have different views on how AI yeah. should behave, though, in the films. That's the crux of my issues with it, but he's so moustache twirly. If they'd have dialed that back, 
I think I could have gone, yeah, I can dig this character. Because I liked Walter. I thought Walter he was more Cotman. nuanced in Prometheus. I thought he got extra mustache twirly in the sequel. Like, yeah, he did, but he's still full on here. There's a lot of the stuff he does that I just go, no, too much. Too much. I, don't, I don't read him that way in Prometheus. Um, I read him as, I can't quite tell what's going off with him. What's going off in that head. Obviously, clearly he's Holloway. He's just resentful at everyone. That's all that's yes. going on in his head. You know, I never yes. felt like he was resentful of anybody other than the ones that were being a dick to him. You know, Wayland and Vickers. And Vickers is pointless in this film. The The entire character arc and intention is absolutely pointless. She was an intriguing character, but to just have her squished at the end, like, it's like... Yeah, and again, the manner of it, why she could have just run to the... It's one of those things where <laughs> interesting concepts, shame about the execution. You see, that's one of those ones where I'm like, yeah, but real life, I've seen footage of things collapsing. Real oh, yeah, things yeah. collapsing. Uh, and people... When you watch it in a film, you go, just do that, just do that, just because it's prolonged. And, you but, just and want... to be fair, they do actually change direction in the film. At the end, when when Numi trips, she just rolls out of the way. Yeah. Like, so it's like you could have done that to start. Like, yeah. The funny thing about that scene is that the the way the movie's edited, they seem to follow the direction in which the thing is falling. It's not falling in a straight line; it's actually curving a little bit. So it, feels, it seems like they're doing the same trajectory, which makes it funny. But circling back to Fassbender, I think that's a problem of direction more than the actor, because the actor is told by the director what to do. So it's more a script problem and a direction problem. I agree with Eric, because Eric says David, you know, David, <laughs> is resentful towards everyone. Like, you can see it from the very beginning of the movie, when, you know, he's um, doing this stuff and he's curious and he's doing this. He's a very asocial kind of person. He's coded as that. And then you get all these lines that just spew passive-aggressive, which is when he's um, loading for mission, for the rescue mission, I think, and he says, doesn't everyone want their parents dead? Yeah. That's one. That wasn't even in the script that, that actually came out. That was the first hint of him being like, wow, this guy's maybe a bit darker than I was thinking. It is an, it is an absurd line, though. Can you imagine L Lindelof calling his parents and saying, yeah, watch this movie I've written, and his parents go, darling, why did you put that line in? Do you want to say something to us? Oh, that was it's really strange. Oh, it was? Okay. No, I was saying that's that would be his excuse. This is set up earlier in the movie because in the debriefing scene, you know, the AVP debriefing scene, we get Wayland, you know, the hologram, which, you know, is a whole other thing. Wayland pulling the uh, Wolverine 2013 plotline when he's dead, but he isn't for no reason. And during that scene, he says, you know, David has no soul because he's a doll, things like that. And we zoom in onto that. You know, we see his robot reaction. David is a servant who's tired and abused by his creator. That's the subject. And he's resentful and he's spiteful. This is interesting. The problem is, again, it's incompletely executed script-wise and direction-wise. I have no qualms if I should have qualms. I, I shouldn't. It's a movie. It, and it's an actor doing the job, you know. He's being paid for this. But Fassbender has, brings a great performance to this because it's very dialed back, restrained, because it's a robot that feels feelings, but he has to act like he isn't. This is, I think, the subtext with the performance, and I love it. But it's not a problem with performance. It's a problem with direction. Talking about Vickers earlier, was there any real reason why 
Vickers and Wayland were separated, could the film have just functioned pretty much the same as it was if Wayland had just been de-aged a bit and just been leading the mission himself? I, I can't really think of a reason why they were separated out and made two characters. I, f- I feel like it was... I mean, there were separate characters in the earlier iterations of the film, but I feel like it was almost to take the place of these surprise soldiers that were in earlier versions of the script. You know, they wanted this surprise cryo sleeper, basically. And I I like the fact that it's sort of... I like the themes. I like some of the stuff going off. You know, it's more Blade Runner than it is Alien. Yeah. Meeting your creator to seek out more life and stuff like that. But I still kind of like it anyway. Um, I still kind of enjoy it as being a logical thing as to why you would might why you might do this. Wayland is arrogant enough to consider himself as a god and arrogant enough to think that his creators would be able to extend him to fix him. It makes sense to me and I like that. But it also it's also another problem I have with the film as well. There's a, a hell of a lot of lack of settle in motivation in logic in the story for god's sakes you know in in space's earlier stuff watts and holloway sure sorry she's Watts. she was called watts in the old older scripts sure and holloway have evidence of the engineers not just cave paintings they have evidence of these them being influence in human evolution in biology and society you know they have evidence of this they don't in prometheus it's like david said that fucking line i hate it and it's one of the reasons i hate shaw as a character because i find it to be very problematic of people these days my truth it's what i choose to believe there there is just the fuck science fuck evidence fuck everything else it's what i want to believe and it's a reason I really hate Shaw as a character, but it's also a problem in the story because the film gives you no evidence of this this theory being correct. But you know what? Wayland will spend a trillion dollars on this hunch of these fucking clowns here to go and find the creators because he is desperate for more life. Not just that, but accompany the mission personally when he thinks yeah. he only has a few more days to live. So he should have that extra evidence. Yeah. Yeah. And at least with Spacer's thing as well, you know, there was evidence towards... They go for terraforming technology earlier, and there is evidence of it in what Shaw and and Holloway have found. So it makes sense. You know, there is logical stuff going off there. And in terms of setup and execution as well, Holloway's turn in the film, I fucking hate how he suddenly becomes depressed because there's no live engineers. He's a fucking archaeologist. He likes dead things. He has something to contribute to the dead body arena, but he gets depressed because they're not alive. Not once is it established early on in the film that he he has hopes of meeting live ones. Not to mention they had just started exploring, yeah, like just barely, for only a few hours. Who knows if they're still on other planets or anything. Or the other domes. Yeah. I mean, they've already seen at least one holographic recording. They don't know how much is in computer storage in these things. They they could be a whole, like, fortress solitude-type computer that lets you interact with the sum of their knowledge. It could be... There's so much he could have just been... Okay, we didn't find one, but still, wow. But he doesn't... You're right. He just goes... You were going to bring up more deleted scenes, Aaron. Like, Holloway gets even more intense. Yeah, there's there's one that sort of leads into it a little better, where they're having this party of they've found their life and all this stuff, and he's like, I, I kind of hope to meet them alive. But again, it should have been established earlier. It should have been an earlier part of, like, the briefing stuff. And yeah, it's not... 
it's not executed well. That's the problem with the film in the long run. So much of it is, yeah, this could have been interesting, but it's not. It's poorly executed. This is just me, but my impression is that people are fans of Prometheus, probably not all, but a lot of them fall in love, not so much with the film, but they fall in love with the sandbox, what it puts out there, because to them, it inspires them. You know, we've seen it in the RPG. The RPG does it really well. It does the sandbox thing. You give the engineers, you've got the, the seeds, no pun intended, but the seeds of where that could lead, where it could branch off. And when I see people who do talk about it and they, they show their passion and their love for it, that seems to be, and again, just my impression, but that seems to be what they love about it. They love what it, it made them, expanded their dreams to it. Like they love that we get engineers, we get things that can interact, talk. They have themselves have feelings. They, they made a city in Covenant. They love where it can lead to. Here, we are just discussing the merits of the film itself, and you have to discuss the narrative structure. And a lot of these things are the flaws which are, even if you love it, you have to acknowledge they are there. But it's about, does that make the House of Cards collapse because of it, or can you just enjoy it in spite of that? And I think a lot of the things we've mentioned, they do have a habit of going, oh, if this thing's gone wrong, then yeah. that thing's gone right. Like, if they aren't actually professionals, then what good are they sort of thing? But, I mean, you can love it in spite of that. Yeah, you definitely can. And there's fans that really do appreciate Prometheus. And that's, that's a thing with divisive films, especially being in the fandom that I, I've kind of had to, to learn is like, I'm happy for people who enjoyed it. Like, I never think it's good to try and say, well, you're wrong for liking this movie. The prequel films have their fans and there's things I genuinely enjoy about that. And I genuinely love Covenant. Yeah. And I don't. <laughs> but again, with that, I feel like I, I've kind of evolved my perspective on Covenant. Same with Prometheus. Now, as an Alien fan, I do think Covenant's a, a bit more of an enjoyable film, I guess, even though it doesn't handle the Alien stuff well. But both films are super frustrating and, and fall into the same kind of pitfalls. And it's like you said, Eric, Prometheus spent so much time setting up itself as like, we'll answer this stuff in the sequel, you know, like Shaw flies away to get her answers and whatever, dies off screen. We don't even get a prequel book talking about her trying to find her answers. You know, it's some whole other thing. And that's what was so frustrating about that sequel as well. And I almost, not to get too into Covenant on this podcast, but I almost have to wonder if we would have gotten that parallel Prometheus sequel, if not for Alien 5. If Covenant was the compromise that Scott got with the studio to have his project take priority. Also, I wanted to take this back. So I know we're, we're super negative here and I feel bad about it. But yeah, it's it's easy to get wrapped up in it, you know, just kind of like I did after the, the movie came out. It's easy to find ways to alleviate your frustrations with it. And I remember saving a bunch of analysis about this movie. Like I have a whole bookmark folder just of like even some praise of the movie, too. But a lot of it was heavily critical of the film. And there was a piece my film teacher did talking about the scene you were just you were just talking about with Holly. Away and him being depressed. And it says, I really can't agree with this. The reaction to the alien discovery was bizarre and completely unmotivated. These are scientists who poke around in Scotland and get all weepy when they discover a cave painting and then fall into a moody alcoholic funk mere minutes after making what they themselves describe as the greatest discovery in the history of humankind. The dude was drinking himself silly even as the 2000 year old alien head came to life, mutated and then exploded. 
if that's not enough to make you put down your Seagrams, well, then you're a horribly written character is what you are. Yeah. He really, yeah. really was. He was so much better in space and stuff. So much better. I feel what Adam is saying, you know, we're being overly negative, but let's remember one thing. One, we are talking about our opinions and our relationship with the phenomenon of the movie and the fandom. The fandom, again, it was a very polarizing movie. And we had that sort of edgy, snobby fan that, you know, said the thing we, we were talking about before, you know, it's too intellectual for you. The same kind of fan that thinks like, you know, aliens turned the alien into a dumb space bomb, the same kind of fun. But there's also people that like Prometheus and, you know, it's totally legit. I mean, film enjoyment, despite what critics want you to believe, is entirely subjective. Talking about the positivity stuff, one thing I've definitely evolved, this is since I've come to look at it in isolation from the film Prometheus, I have come to really, really, really come to appreciate and admire the soundtrack for this film. I do really love the music for Prometheus. It doesn't mean, say, they couldn't have had um, some more suitable music for certain scenes, but the actual soundtrack I really love. This has become one of my favourite soundtracks from the alien film and it's by two composers isn't it the main theme is by there's there's a couple contributed so i think life was contributed by harry harry something gregor and williams yeah the guy who was going to do covenant if i'm not mistaken until jed kersel had to do it but i i agree with eric it's very moody it was it was something i hated about the film to start with because i thought it was inappropriate for a lot of the sequences but that's not a problem <sighs> Well, I want to say that's not a problem with the score because it feels like they put the wrong music to the wrong scene, but it kind of is a problem with the score as well because the guys sat there writing the music to the yeah. to the, the the footage on the screen. But like, there is some fantastic tracks, but it's just the problem that where scenes are that are supposed to be yeah. dark and brooding and worrisome is epic and yeah. and mysterious. Technically, yeah, it's, exactly. a, it's a very nice score, but it has the same problem that the movie has in that it feels confused in tone. It opens with this grand, heroic, you know, 2001 A Space Odyssey kind of feel, and then goes to the terror and horror and brooding. And it goes back and forth between those a lot. So, yeah, and I mean, I mean, it's possible to do a movie with those two elements for sure, but it just felt with the context of Alien, it should have maybe pushed towards the horror a bit more. At least maybe that's what we were expecting, but... That's expectations of the trailer, though, because, yeah. I mean, if there's one thing we can say about Alien, it is that it is unique. Each film is different. And, you know, a lot of times we contribute that to the stamp of the... Act uh, not the actors. The director. And I don't think... Going back to it being Rid Ridley, I don't think we need to shoot pigeonhole any sort of tone or feel on the film but the marketing set it up as this yeah. horror film yeah. horror film whereas that's not what it is yeah that's that's the problem but we're, we're past that point though we're past that point so it shouldn't be a problem now just to fill in the gaps the uh soundtrack was composed and written by max Treitenfeld. i hope i pronounced that correctly and it features pieces by harry gregson williams and conducted by ben foster that's what Wikipedia gotcha. says. 
But while we are on the score, there's one interesting bit, which is, you know, in the, again, the AVP, the briefing scene, when Wayland appears, we get a reprise of the classic alien team. And then like, again, this is not a problem with the score. It's a problem of how it is inserted into the movie, you know, at the most inappropriate parts. Uh, the theme song, again, it's not a bad theme by itself. It's a great piece of music. I agree. The music is great, but it's inserted into the movie at puzzling thematically moments. And one of those moments is the debriefing scene. Because when Wayland appears, we get the reprise of the alien team. And I'm like, is this the moment you want to reprise the alien team? I think it's because it's the most obvious the film gets early on in terms of being, yes, this is a fucking alien film, Wayland. It's obvious. So I think that's why they took that moment to go, yeah, okay. Is is a brief reminder of Alien. Doesn't mean it works. <laughs> Doesn't mean it works at all. But I tell you what, speaking of the, the briefing scene, I do appreciate the fact that they avoided that horrible, horrible way that writers will sometimes start scenes of exposition as, as you know. But with Vickers, we get, for those of you that have met me, yeah, and for those of you who haven't, I like that. I was like, okay, thank you. Yes. Thank you. As you already know, pisses me off. Well, that also brings up another problem that was in my in my list here of frustrations with the movie. And it was, uh, derp, I'm 99 fucking years old and want to ask the aliens for the secret to immortality. Hmm, the best way to do that is to assemble a crew of fucktars and put them into hypersleep without them even meeting each other, let alone training together for this crucial mission. Or any evidence. Or any evidence? He puts all this together without any evidence, just on a hunch. Right. Yeah. Fuck this film. <laughs> <laughs> yes! Yes! That should be the name of the anniversary podcast. <laughs> See, I, 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 all this stuff, Fuck it this makes film. me think it just <laughs> needed an extra one or two drafts. It had like eight. I know. It must have been on that many. They overdid they it. They more, overwrote it. More polishing. They, no, they, they overwrote there's it. There's stuff there that's so obvious and they... It's like, I hate this film, but I'm wearing the t-shirt. I saw it five times in theaters and I bought it on Blu-ray day but, one. But there is, there is like so much stuff in it I love. You know, I love the concept of the black... But it's, I mean, I think Eric was saying earlier, it's the sandbox. And I like those aspects of the film. You know, you guys might not like David. I do. I think he's one of the best things to come out of the franchise. I, I think years. he was pretty good in, in Prometheus, yeah. I still I still fucking love him in Covenant, even if he does get a bit more obviously villainous in there. But, you know, I like the black goo. I like the engineers, despite them not wanting to be the space jockeys, but I like the engineers. It does things I like, but as a package, it's just like, oh, no. I don't very often want to watch Prometheus. I will sometimes want to watch Furious Gods. You know, as Adam said earlier, you know, the behind... Charles's documentary is far more entertaining and coherent as a pro <laughs> as an entire package than the film is. I mean, seriously, somebody needs to tell Ridley Scott no. <laughs> it's why I'm like, I'm glad it's Fede doing things next. That's Scott's choice. I don't know how much involvement he'll have, so... Hopefully, hopefully no involvement. He just leaves him to it and goes, yeah, it seems everybody's sick of me doing Alien. <laughs> you, you go off and do it, but yeah. This brings me... And this is an elaborate joke. I hope it's funny. The elephant in the room, which is the space jockey. <laughs> Let's talk about the space jockey, shall we? Why did it say the elephant in the room? Because this is at the root of one of the things I don't like about Prometheus at all. Which and is I what imagine we were talking people. about before when, when Aaron rightfully interrupted me, you know, because I went overboard with the intro and because again, I have so much to say. But before Prometheus, 
what did we have? And this, I need your guys' help because we get the space jockey in, was it Female War? So we, we get the space jockey in the original trilogy. Book one. But we actually physically see him in book one. Right from the start. We get him in the wrap-up of the initial trilogy, The Alien. And then, yeah, that's pretty much it until Destroying Angels. He shows up in a comic book adventure, one of the games. Yes, because I remember three distinct looks. The Destroying Angels one, which we talk about in the podcast with that. The, you know, space suit one with the little tentacles around the trunk. The stocky looking one with the weapons. And then we get the uh, karate guy. You know, the guy that knows karate from another of the comics. That's the alien, yeah. Yes, I mean, and he was wrapped around this kind of Eastern culture-looking route, you know, kind of an, a desert immigrant or something like that. And he knows karate for no reason. I hate the karate used in these movies. I hate the engineer going karate. I hate the androids in Covenant going karate. I hate this tendency to do karate for no David reason. does not like karate is what we've learned on this episode. No, I like karate, but why in here? Because it's comic books. <laughs> basically yeah i mean it's a comic i mean i like stronghold you know it's a comic it's a ha it has the rights to do something whimsical like this so the perception in the expanded universe of the space jockey was derived from a lack of creativity because you get the original giga sculpture which has this all these great ideas you know it's it looks like it's grown from the chair which is what they say in the movie and that giga said you know it's grown for its purpose it may or may not be part of the ship itself, which is very interesting. A similar concept to the space jockey ended up in a very great sci-fi series called Farscape, which had the pilot, this kind of crustacean-looking guy. I recommend Farscape to every pop fan out there because it's great. But in the expanded universe, they went on and said, you know, we have this giga skeleton. What should we do with it? And they do jack shit. They do heavy metal kind of elephantine-esque designs. And they missed the point because the jockey was never an elephant-looking creature. The shape of the head and the famous trunk-like structure that connects the chest to the head is based on a jet pilot's helmet, you know, with the breathing hose. That's the concept. In the original Giga drawing, we get, you know, also a kind of transparent-looking dome over the head, the skull of the jockey. When we look at Alien, the jockey, and we look at it, it is a creature. There is no question that it is a creature. It is a creature in the idea, in the scripts, because they call it a creature. There's no evidence that it is not a creature. And then if you look at it, even in the movie, you can see the empty eye sockets, you know, the orbits, the eyelids, or whatever you want to call them, a tongue and teeth. And Dan O'Bannon, you know, wanted this creature to look kind of Pacific, you know, I remember the comments he did. Bro, we wanted it to look like a herbivore. Was that, that was it, wasn't it? And no, that was a comment on a wrong cop drawing. But he liked it because oh, of that reason, because he wanted it not to look predatory, which is reflected in the final design. I think the whole thing was, it was inspired by Planet of the Vampires, where there was a scene yes, where astronauts because in Planet of the skeleton, Vampires, yeah. which is this Mario Bava movie, I think, from 1965, you have this giant 
skeleton. I'm also fairly convinced that there was some influence from the Creeping Flesh, which is a Peter Cushing movie, but that's me. And also you have all the down and and stuff that comes from Lockhart and so forth. So for a bit of history, again, this was supposed to be a creature. Then Scott, around the 2000s, established the idea that maybe it was something else inside the space jockey, that the space jockey could be a suit or shell for something else inside. I'm fairly convinced this comes from Independence Day, which popularized the concept. Around the same time, and I'm going to ask Aaron this, didn't we get the Goa old in Stargate after the original movie, but before Prometheus came out? Yeah, so the, the gold would have been 96, 97 when the show came out, and the film was 94. 96, that's when well, Independence Day came Roland out. Emmerich. <laughs> yes, but came from Roland Emmerich. And Dean Devlin, <laughs> don't, don't leave the other one out. But the impression I get is that Scott saw these movies and thought something inside something else, you know, subversion of expectation, which is a huge visual point in Independence Day when they find out that this creature splits open and it's just a grown suit for something else. There's a, an elaborate lore for that. So he came up with this idea. Who came up with the human stuff, as I mentioned before in my overlong <laughs> intro, is John Spades. Well, I think even John Space commented like this was Ridley's idea and I was kind of apprehensive at first and a lot of the artists were too. It was Scott that had to convince everybody. But he does have that line. He does have that line and I hate this this quote, honestly. I, I really yes. disagree with him on this where he yes. says, the only way we would care about the engineers is, is if their story was ultimately our story. And, you know, so there had to be some sort of connection. So that's why we kind of made them look like us. And I'm like, no, District 9 proves that wrong. For sure. Yes. And first of all, why do we even need empathy for the space jockeys to be fascinated with them? Like people were fascinated with them in the original Alien. They don't have to look yes. like humans for us to be interested in them. Hell, just look at Sigourney Weaver's film, Gorillas in the Mist. It helps you empathize yes. with gorillas. They don't have to be human. Yes, but there's two arguments with this. One, we don't need to empathize with the, the cosmic horror. That's the point of the cosmic horror is that it cannot be empathized with. That's one. But let's assume that you want to empathize with the jockey. You can't. In 2016, we had Arrival. Arrival gave us very alien-looking aliens, but we empathized with them because they were a sapient, yeah. benevolent race. And again, the benevolent race concept was, I think, somewhere in the alien ideas because the Bannon concept... And again, I keep going back to alien, keep going back to the original ideas, and they reconned it. But what I find fascinating about the Prometheus phenomenon is how this criticism, which is a legitimate criticism, whether you like it or not, is the response to it. Because because people began saying, oh, you know, the space jockey looks like an elephant. Again, that's because of this expanded universe. And the, and I remember on the forums, you know, people posting in a mocking tone pictures of the jockey and, did you want this? And I'm like, no, fuck no, I didn't want that. I wanted a giga creature, you know? There's a lot of stuff that you can do. I remember this guy that was obsessed with Neil Blomkamp at a certain point. Was, I think his name is Doc Stewart. Doc Stewart. And she did all these concepts before Prometheus came out of this beautiful looking, even they were even suits, I think, at a certain point, but they had, he had these grasshopper legs. They were gigantic and disproportionate to the body. And you had these beautiful illustrations of these space jockeys, you know, kind of looming over the eggs, you know, farming them with these huge grasshopper legs. That's interesting. Another guy, and I think the guy is on the forums. He's a classical trained artist who does movie posters. I think his name is, uh, not Gaz. 
I, I don't remember, but he was one of those guys who did, you know, speculations of space jockey. And you can find him on Damien Todd. I don't remember the name right now. You thinking of spaghetti? No, no spaghetti. Spaghetti is another one. Spaghetti did a lot of incredible, very raw, very heavy metal, very surrealistic. Abelardo, I think is, is his name now around. I don't, I've lost contact with the guy. Unfortunate, but he did all these very interesting concepts based on the fact that maybe they were grown for their purpose. And then you get this other guy, this painting guy. Again, we're gonna like provide the name or some sort of the podcast because this is important. Well, I hope you can remember them when we're done. I- I'm gonna find them, but he did this very interesting space jockeys that had no eyes because the eyes were, you know, not there because it was a dome, but it was a fleshy dome, like a like a chest poster. And they had, you know, this kind of spine. There was no legs. Yeah, I know. I know that piece of fan. These are three guys, three artists that weren't brought into a team. And this demonstrates to you that it takes just a, you know, a leap of creativity to make the space jockey interesting as a living creature. I myself have attempted to do so, not successfully. And that's the problem, and that's the double-edged sword with delving into the space jockey, the engineers, right, is we had our imaginations about what they were an alien, and that was so yes. fascinating. And on the lead-up to Prometheus, we were we were interested in finding out more about them. But going back now, I wonder if it was, well, I don't think it was the best choice to reveal more about them, because that was part of the fun, was, was imagining that. And, like, one of my yes. favorite aspects of the original space jockey was the fact that it was part of the chair and and Dallas makes the comment it's fossilized and you see part of the fossilized texture actually melding right into the chair and it makes you wonder do they even have bodies where they can move around maybe they have consciousnesses they can transfer from body to body and this body is purpose built to be part of this chair like that's that's really weird and interesting and cool but Prometheus does away with that and it's just a hop on the chair you know but I did I did find that the exosuit he wears in Prometheus only is part of the chair but we see them running around in the hologram. I do wish we had seen more of that because I do feel like the art designers for what Ridley wanted actually made that look pretty cool. And I I did like that exosuit design that they had. But yeah, it's not nearly as fascinating as all the imaginings we had about the space jockey in the original film. About the suit you bring up, I have to disagree with you here because I don't like that design. Again, because of the direction, but I find it especially funny that, you know, they wanted to move away from the elephant tent stuff. The fans complain about the elephant stuff, and then it's a top here looking creature. I remember some of the guys in our forums called it they the space tapir. I was one of them. The thing, yeah. yeah. I, remember I remember that. It was that. so funny. But yeah, I mean, they look like tapirs. They, they have this big animal-like lens eyes. They look... I'm not sure the direction here. And a lot of people, I remember, a lot of people wanted this to be an evidence of the engineers, you know, the big space beam diesels to emulate the original jockey. You know, as a theory, which is interesting, but it's entirely divorced from the intention. You have to take something else into account for the space jockey to be a creature. You know, you can choose the continuity you want. That's the way. 
I agree with Adam in that I actually really like the suit that they use, and I like the practical suits. That's another thing we haven't really talked about. They used a lot of practical effects in this, which was actually quite refreshing and does look good. But yeah, I like I like the practical suit, but I go back as well, and I, I find it I find them quite conflicted because I I don't like them as the space jockeys. It's as we've said, we can talk about this ad infinitum. You know, the other ideas, the other theories are infinitely more interesting than pro humans really and you know i like the idea that the space jockey is its own specific thing there are no other space jockeys on this ship it is it is like the farscape thing you know it is pilot that is is, is its one biological purpose and is genetically engineered to sit in that chair and navigate the nostromo crew go through small tunnels small airlocks human-sized tunnels space jockey i'm going to walk through that so there is other creatures other genetically engineered creatures that perform other tasks on this ship and they are those access ports that's one of my thoughts of, of the way it could have been it should have been and all that kind of all that kind of stuff so there is a great deal of the other aspects the other things that we thought about could have been more interesting and that kind of ruins the engineers but it's why i always say it wasn't a matter of I didn't want to see the space jockey explored. It's just that the things that were given to me aren't as interesting as the things I imagined or other fans imagined or stuff like that. But on the flip side of it, I really like the engineers. You know, there's something about this giant pearlescent being with dark eyes, just empty, emotionless eyes that I find is absolutely fucking terrifying. And I also, I kind of like that it sort of harkens back to some of, again, those early concept arts by Giga, you know, where they had these white humanoid generic looking creatures being infected by the face of her, you know, during the early stages, you know, when Giga called it O'Bannon's alien in, in the little notations on the artwork. And I like that sort of, I doubt it was intentional, but I like that sort of callback in my mind. And there's just something about this generic prototype humanoid being that I think looks really interesting. But again, on the flip side of that, I hate the idea that everything comes back to human or humanoid. I mean, I mean, end of the day, human is them, is the way the story works. It Everything comes back to engineer, but it does... It makes the universe feel smaller in in that regard, where everything is related to each other. You know, the 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 aliens are a result of an android with daddy issues, rightfully so, daddy issues. But then that all sort of worms its way back to this cyclical loop of of all being related to each other, which is kind of yeah. I think yeah that and the, and I agree with you, Aaron. There is something compelling about how the engineer is presented in this movie. First of all, Ian White's performance was great. As the engineer, but that's one of the few truly biomechanical aspects of the film as we see it in the opening of the film and it's just a plain white body, but then we see the one they awaken and it has this pressure suit on it's called, but it looks like the suit is actually part of its body. Like you can't really tell where the suit ends and its body begins and it's almost like they altered themselves somehow, which again was done away with in Covenant. So you have to wonder if it was only these this group that was, was doing that to themselves. But yeah, it, it does. And it's the problem I've had with both prequels is that Covenant really made things feel smaller in terms of the jockeys and the engineers or sorry, um, Prometheus did. And then Covenant made things feel smaller in terms of the alien itself. 
But then, the, I mean, there's, again, lots of fan fan explanations and stuff away. Like, Covenant is another one of those things where I like the themes, but I hate the themes. But, like, the, the idea of the alien, uh, the alien being designed specifically to combat these humanoid kind of beings, there's something in there that I find compelling and, and interesting. But then that's where the pathogen becomes, like, this replacement for this ancient cosmic horror of, instead of being the alien. You know, so perhaps... Again, David alluded to the fan theory earlier that the, the, the engineers are imitating a space jockey. And, and that's, I, I, I subscribe to that because I want the space jockeys to be not the engineers, but I love the engineers. So I don't know. See, for me, I'm, I'm very much in the camp of I don't want these to be the, the space jockey. I want them to either have emulated the space jockey or perhaps upgraded because the space jockeys left and they, they no longer went for the genetically created version. They, they didn't want a vat created organic thing. They wanted to make a AI type thing. But I, I do definitely love the work the effects team did on the suit, the actual, you know, the, the engineer's head, blah, 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 the, the eyes, as you say, that, that it emulates that quote from Quint in Jaws about like a doll's eyes, black eyes. And he's talking about shark eyes. I really like, although it wasn't long, I did really like Ian White's performance as the engineer. He did project that enigmatic presence of something although even though his height did a lot of that work for him he did project not just power but a feeling of what's it going to do with that power it really worked well that combination of the effects the, the thing that really spoiled the um the effects work i felt was when the deacon emerged and this armor that he was wearing which was deflecting shotgun blast it sort of like looks obviously like flexible rubber so that kind of destroyed that illusion for me well, it wasn't deflecting them. You can see the blast actually penetrate the oh, we do. His I body. It yeah. deflect. Okay, but still, I I didn't like how it was. It came out and it was obviously rubbery stuff because it was bending. But the actual execution of okay, they're going with that. What they do with that, it it works. But as I said, I would have really liked to see some interaction with the engineer, or maybe you can have the space jockeys return at a future time because obviously many people have talked about not just the teeth and the tongue but the space jockey was so fucking massive compared to the engineers here's a quote from i've said earlier about mass effect there's a bit of dialogue here which would work fine for if the engineer had spoken or you have space jockeys talk about the engineers you could have it saying something like this it's that the reaper is talking to Shepard and it says your civilization is based on the technology of the mass relays our technology. By using it, your society develops along the paths we desire. We impose order on the chaos of organic evolution. You exist because we allow it, and you will end because we demand it. That kind of thing would have, if he'd have just given that kind of response to the kind of the begging, the sort of, please, sir, can I have some more from Wayland, assuming he would be able to understand it, because the problem with that scene, David never translates it. Something like that, where it makes them feel properly ominous. I vastly preferred that to it just flipping out, because that, that's the major problem. You, you're led up to this path, and then what do they do with it? They just have it act like a psychotic human. What's different about it? It's just, it's got more strength. It's like a predator. But I, if they're going to go with that, I liked with how the effects team and Ian White executed it. I just think it was a wasted opportunity when they could have really gone to town with something powerfully exotic. 
And let's not forget Giga's concept when he was doing, we said earlier, the original face huggers, you got this thing with a springy tail. It's shown basically what looks like the engineer suit. So I think back then, I assume Giga was told they were the crew and the space jockey was just like the central CPU for it because the big thing about Alien back then was you were going to rewatch it and realise, ah, that's what happened to the crew. The crew are the eggs. So clearly the crew were much smaller compared to the space jockey. So you could go in the future, you could say these are what happened to the crew. The crew evolved from their purpose, if you want to go back to that roots. But it was nice to see it look like a living creature. That's what makes that that visual of it good. But just seeing it flip out and seeing it so human, as you said, so everything constricts and you, know, you felt very human-centric. And the whole point about Alien was it put you on the precipice yeah. of that here-be-dragons territory because that was something we had never... It looked like a legitimate... Uh, you imagine astronauts go to Mars or whatever and they find a giant skeleton of something. Your mind would go to the space jockey. It would go to yeah. something that's unlike anything we've seen in our history. It would be a, a melding of machine and organic. It would look like something where you'd go, how does that work? I want to see this alive. How does it function? How would it communicate? How would it perceive? And by just having it a big bloke, Albino bodybuilder, yeah. I know what happens because it's human. They literally say... It's an exact match for DNA yeah. of human beings. So it is literally a human being in a suit. It's just bigger. And that just, it constricts the world. It shrink wraps it. And Alien should be about, if you're casting your mind back to the, the Borg episode of Next Generation, when the Borg were introduced, Q says to Picard, you can't take a little bloody nose. You're going to go out here. You're going to see terrors pure nightmares you're going to see wonders that are heavenly but i've given you a taste and that's what we got with alien we got a taste you saw something that used to live something that was that large it commanded a, a thing that huge it's either docked onto or it was carrying these eggs were they just one component of something or was was the alien it all these are not it's thought-provoking and the engineers, you don't get that thought-provoking bit. It's taken the RPG to open that up. Again, it's the sandbox effect. But what you're given in Prometheus, yeah, they might as well be Egyptians. They're literal sarcophaguses. You wake up a pharaoh or something. It's just a pharaoh that's been bodybuilding. And that's why it's replaced it. If you replace something iconic with something which is much more underwhelming, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Yeah. I agree with most of this. Again, I bring up Predator 2018 against Predator 2. You know, this is a very similar concept we talked about before. You mentioned the Giga drawing of the original face hugger with the engineer-like figure next to it and what looks like the urn. I'm not sure what that person is supposed to be. I'm fairly sure it's just a Giga person. But I do want to recall that we were saying that, you know, Prometheus is based on unused script stuff for Alien. And one of the drafts, and I think it, this was the Giller Hill draft, where they turned the alien into a space experiment from humans, and the space jockey, the skeleton of the alien creature pilot, was replaced by a human skeleton. And then, you know, there were camps about it during production and you know there were O'Bannon and Ronnie Shuzit you know saying you know this should be an alien not 
a human. It misses the whole point. And and there were, you know, Giller and Hill saying we did this for these reasons and so forth. And then they asked the director and Ridley Scott said, and I quote, I think it was from Cinefantasy, we definitely have to go back to the first word when it comes to the space job. And what's interesting here is that 20, 30 years down the line, they do the opposite. They brought in the Giller Hill alien as a human experiment. And all of this comment that you did, Eric, brings me to delicious main course, which is, is it Lovecraftian or not? And the thing here is, you know, a lot of people were pushing out this idea that it was Lovecraftian because the plot hits, you know, the story hits the same beats as the Lovecraft novella at the mountains of madness. And this is technically true. Now, I want to say this loud and clear. I hate the term Lovecraftian because it's been meme-fied to death and there's no meaning to it anymore. But what was being meant there was that it was reminiscent of Lockhart's works by intention. And it's not. Because if it has that vibe, it's because it's drawing from the alien script drafts. Those were Lovecraft influenced by O'Bannon's own volition. And there's quotes in that. There's so many, you know, crazy quotes from O'Bannon that I just love. And people were arguing, you know, about this. And the thing, the, the very cool thing about this is that Alien versus Predator did the same thing. Alien versus Predator has the pyramid, which is from Alien script drafts and concept art. And they did this going into the unknown, which is at the mountains of madness is about, you know, going into the unknown, the horrific adventure, the weird fiction. Prometheus is weird fiction, but it is weird fiction that doesn't want to be weird fiction. It's like, psychotic in this in this regards you know it has all this again heavy metal magazine kind of plot the mission too much kind of thing the von Dyken kind of stuff and yet it wants to look down on you and say you know this is the i'm taking myself very seriously and then when you think through the movie again we talk about this but again it's this junction of intention you know i want this to be a kind of very deep, very philosophical movie about mankind's origin, about the limits of science, about the limits of religion, and all of this big, again, philosophical debate. And then you frame it into this, uh, again, heavy metal magazine kind of everything. And then you frame it into the Alien franchise. So you're show honing into show honing, you know, show honing exception or whatever. And that's one of the biggest grabs I have with the movie and the grabs I have with some of the fans trying to justify, you know, what it's doing. And you don't need to do that. It's a direction. It's a creative decision. Whether you like it or not, it's your thing. If the movie speaks to you on any level, that's good. That's good. That's absolutely great. I love films that are hated or polarizing or stuff or movies that have been flops. One infamous movie that I love so much and I always defend is Dune, you know, the Lynch one. And I recognize everything. I recognize the production issues. I recognize the differences with the novel, the differences of interpretation of the story and flow of it and the editing issue and stuff. But the movie speaks to me on some level. And I'm sure there's people that like Prometheus in that way and that they are inspired by Prometheus. And this is good. This is good. Adam was saying, you know, we are very negative about it. And yes, because we are for secular alien fans. That's obvious. But there's also people that like the movie and they're not, you know, those pretentious guys, you know, it's too intellectual for you. Those people exist, but there's a bigger Prometheus fan base that does not limit itself to, you know, the pretentious people. It, it is dangerous to associate the fandom of a certain thing to a certain attitude. It exists, 
it is the most vocal one and the one you hear the most when you are on the opposite side of the arguing. But there's also people that like Prometheus and are fine with you disliking it, yeah. fine with you, yeah, you know, not agreeing with them. I know some of them. I've had what's a very rare case of healthy Prometheus debates, which is, you know, something I wouldn't have even dreamed of back in 2012 because I also was very young, very emotional. When I saw the movie, and this may be a little embarrassing to say, but this is the mechanism that I felt. It was like breaking up with my first ex when I saw the movie, because I was so in love with the Alien franchise, so in love with the Alien creature, everything about it, from the aesthetic to the creature. So it was kind of like personal to me. And now all these years later, that energy has kind of dissipated and... You know, it only is brought up when I have to tear apart the movie as I am doing now with very big pleasure. But again, it's very right that there's people that like the movie. The important thing, and I stress this a lot in my comments, in my reviews, in my articles, is that you have the right to like the movie and there's nobody that should tell you you are wrong. But at the same time, you shouldn't look down on other people and say, this is too intellectual for you because that's a crock of shit yeah. is what it is. I think you say that very well, David, in terms of like, yeah, if if you love the movie, more power to you. Like there's no denying Prometheus has made a significant mark in sci-fi. It is a very significant sci-fi film, regardless of all the issues and frustrations we've been over with it as alien fans. At the same time, there are people who blindly love things and they'll dismiss any criticism at it. I think you're seeing that now with Jurassic World Dominion a little bit. You see some fans that are like, how dare you even hate on this movie? Don't, don't get me started on that. I, we won't go into that, but that's that's a whole other thing. But yeah, you can, David and I, we both have the experience of liking movies that are pretty widely disliked. And, you know, and I get all those criticisms, but even then, regardless of the movies more liked or more disliked or whatever, it's unfair for someone on a specific side of a film to say, you're just wrong. You just don't get it. Because art is subjective. A lot of fans were disappointed with Prometheus. And sometimes you have things that are more universally loved, like the first two Alien films. And that's great. When we can all or most of us get on board with something, that's always an awesome thing. But it's also interesting when you have those intense disagreements about things. And maybe not intense, maybe just civil, maybe friendly disagreements about things, maybe things you can debate and talk about. Because again, Aaron, that's that goes to something that Scott probably intended. And you you have directors that have said that, like, I would rather make a movie that some people like and some people hate so that the discussion keeps on moving forward with that. Another thing that's interesting about Prometheus is when I first saw it, I also had like a weird, my relationship with the franchise thing with it, David, where I was like, I'm just going to compartmentalize this. Okay. They said it wasn't an alien prequel. I don't care if it's in the same universe. It's doing its own thing. And if we get another one, it'll go off in a different direction. So I can still have my alien be the alien that I always loved because this is its own thing. But not long after Prometheus, we see that movie get integrated into the wider lore more with the Fire and Stone and Life and Death comics, which just threw Prometheus into ADP, which was pretty funny. But I think more effectively done recently in terms of some of the novels and in terms of Aliens Fireteam Elite and in terms of the RPG, especially, they have taken those elements of Prometheus that felt divorced from Alien and thrust it into Alien to varying degrees of effectiveness, I think. And there have been some things that have been quite effective. I think Aliens Fireteam Elite took what we were frustrated about with the aesthetics and the lack of Giger in Prometheus and put it back towards that. 
gave us more Giger than we had experienced since the first Alien or since a game like Alien Isolation. You know, it took what was still a recognizable aesthetic from Prometheus, but it gave it what we wanted. And so I feel like having it be explored in the RPG and in in that game and in other avenues kind of makes you retroactively go back and look at it. But for us, I think we're still super disappointed, but we've come to a point where it's accepted. You know, as frustrating as that can be, it's accepted. Now, do I still appreciate my alien stories that don't have any of those prequel elements? Hell yes, I do. And I still hope that Fide Alvarez does that, does something more like the 40th anniversary shorts that are divorced from that. But again, I have to wonder where would the franchise be without those prequel films right now? I mean, what what are you thinking in terms of that, in terms of activity, or are you yeah. thinking in terms of... How active okay. would it be after Resurrection, the AVPs? Yeah, that's, like... that's very fair. Because, I mean, functionally, a lot of what a lot of what Prometheus does had already existed in other forms in the older lore anyway. You know, me, me and you used to argue about the accelerant, and I'm like, yeah, but it's just the fucking royal jelly, and stuff like that, so... That conversation took a turn anyway. In in terms of like, you know, fandom reaction and stuff like that, there's nothing exclusive to, to us, as, you know, Adam pointed out with Jurassic Park there. Jurassic World, sorry. It's just always a case of the vocal minority, isn't it? A very important distinction, Park and Wood. Very important. <laughs> I, th- I think probably a more universal thing would be probably the Star Wars films, because you went from the classic trilogy and then you had a whole different type of person who was attracted to the prequels. And then you had the sequels, and then That's you had the TV show. Yeah, but I'm saying that you are going to get a similar thing going on with some fans liking one thing, others not liking. And I mean, end of the day, we are all individuals. As much as we're brought together by a series, you know, there, there's elements within there that we're interested in. You know, we, we we see that with all the arguing between us. You know, with Adam getting shit on for liking Requiem and uh, Eric doesn't like Alien Three and David's in fucking joyousness of the fact that that this has turned into a Prometheus bash. Yes. I mean, he's a, he's a bad fan there. He's a bad person. He's taking pleasure out of uh, other people's entertainment being ripped into. I even saw some comments on the forums that were like, oh, I love Prometheus. It's one of my favorites. I can't wait for your anniversary podcast. <laughs> I wasn't looking forward to this because... I mean, you guys must know by now, I don't like being negative. I don't like expending energy on things that I don't like. And that's why I find it frustrating not liking things. Why I find it frustrating knowing that I was going to come spend three hours wanting... It's not that I want to be positive, because like I've said, there are things in here I like. I love David. I like the engineers. But this one, this film is so difficult to talk about because so much of it is also frustrating as shit, which makes it difficult. But I don't know how we turn to that. But I am thankful for... The accelerant in a way that I think saves a little bit of that. Accelerant or the pathogen? Wasn't it wasn't it the accelerant in Fire and Stone? It's accelerant in the comics. Yeah. In Fire and Stone. One of the covenant scripts call it the Xenovirus. <laughs> it's a pathogen, I think, in, in the Prometheus stuff leading up to it. It's stuff. Chemical AX09, blah de blah de in um, the, the viral media. and In Covenant, they call it the pathogen. I think there they outright say it's a virus, but then it's, it's like it's got the properties of a bacteria, and it's very weird. It's not consistent. The script definitely referred to it as a xenovirus because it made me laugh. As it should, because it's ridiculous. I am still thankful for its existence in a way, because I think even if... I mean, it's something I like about the Marvel comics, you know, is it being this ancient 
it takes the place of the alien in being this ancient cosmic horror element of the, of the franchise. So I, I'm still kind of thankful it's there in that regards because then it's then it becomes a question of its origins and who made it and is it aware and all that kind of bullshit. So it kind of saves itself from where it fucked up in in a in a it replaces um, an element it fucked up. So I'm still kind of thankful it's there. But I mean, it's like I said earlier, functionally, it, it, it works exactly the same as the Royal Jelly. We've had this for 30. We've had it as long as the comics have basically been around. The Royal Jelly actually like gave you a boost, though. It didn't like disintegrate. No, it did all sorts of things depending on the story. We had Bugman. We had the drug stuff. We had the mutation stuff. So it's nothing new functionally is, is what I'm saying. Yeah. But it, 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 it replaces it in terms of theme and scope and stuff like that. So I do like it. I do like what Marvel's been doing with it. And I like that media is being more consistent with it in terms of being yeah it turns things into aliens in some roundabout yeah. fashion well i did like what alex white did with it in their books yeah me too although you'll trigger eric <laughs> they made it seem like it was like a programmable biological agent that you could program it to have but it effects. always it always went alien-esque in what it did you know like blue we saw in intercaribdis you know they were trying to do their own thing with it but it always took it back to something that resembled the alien and i like that which the movie might have done if they had left the, the Weta effect with the Fifield yes. mutation. That that's why I dislike that we got the I know I complimented the film using a lot of practical effects earlier, but I would so rather have had that wetter version or something that was more obviously uh, Carlos Huante's baby head design. Well, Fifield design. What's interesting about the Fifield guy is I think, and this is entirely, you know, my idea of earlier things influencing newer things on the same franchise because Fox owned everything. But I remember in, was it Gibson or I don't remember, you know, the Alien Tree script drafts where one of the crew members turns into an alien. Yes, it's Gibson. And I think in another of the Alien Tree script, script drafts, I'm fairly sure it was Eric Reds. We had this alien distillation, this kind of alien spore growing into tanks, I think, like war tanks or something like that. I might misremember. I, I can't think of what like you think about this alien spore covering everything, like a fungus. Don't quote me on this. That in turn sounds like it's all inspired way back from War of the Worlds with the red weed. Because that, that in itself is very similar. Yes, and the baby head concept is from that movie because Carlos Huanti, the, the first baby head, was from War of the Worlds. And I know this, and I want to you know do a shout out before we do the closing. Dominic Oxer of Alien Explorations opened up a lot of stuff on this because he was the first one to point out this similarity. You know, the baby head from War of the Worlds concept art and the baby head from Prometheus, which I find very interesting. It's this, you know, you're you're doing your creature actor, your creature design actor, and then you're you're unhappy that it was unused, you know, for War of the Worlds, and then you bring it back. I find it that very cute, very cool. And then of course he doesn't get used again. Yeah. <laughs> and it's and it's kind of sad. At least we got the new morph. What's the, the thing that attacks the engineer at the end? I've forgotten the... The trailer bite. Yeah. I noticed that was 
startlingly similar to a design that was in the prequel for the thing. It's very, very similar. I'd be interested to know if anyone... Which one are you talking about? One of the incarnations of this, the creature that it turns... I think it's when they're investigating the alien ship in the prequel to the thing. Very similar to the Trilobite's design in Prometheus. So I don't know if there was some crossover with the production teams, but I I, I did. I looked at it and I went, that looks just like the Trilobite. I, I don't think so because the team on the thing prequel was different, but there were shared aesthetic, maybe psychosexual elements. In the thing prequel, you had a lot of ADI artists that worked on the AVP movies. You had Michael Broom, you had Paul Komoda, all very great artists that point to the grotesque much the same way Carlos Huanti does. In different ways, of course, their stars are kind of different and you can see it from their drawings. But yeah, there are some similarities. The trilobite design was based on trilobites. You know, they had this very big horny looking, kind of torny looking trilobite called, I think, Decranurus or something like that. And they also used, again, going back to the heavy metal magazine kind of aesthetic, the trilobite design was intentionally influenced by these tentacled creatures that appears in a Mebius comic called The Long Tomorrow. In the comic, this the, the main character is in bed with this French girl. The original Arcturians. Um, yes, must be said. the original Arcturians. And they called they called that out in the behind the scenes as well. Specifically, that the long goodbye. I still need to go back and read all those old movies. Long tomorrow, sorry. And this French girl during a sex scene. During a sex scene, she because you know the main guy is on the phone. I think during that scene, and suddenly he finds out she's a spy, and then suddenly she turns into this <laughs> this horrific sexual looking kind of possession you know the movie the Zulaski movie like and i think that was also influenced by long tomorrow because it came before and you know this tentacle monster goes mon amour <laughs> and kind of wraps around the guy and it's a very kind of bizarre sequence and they found its way in the prometheus script drafts because in one of the script drafts shaw has sex with holloway i don't remember if those were the names at the time and he bursts during the sex right? he bursts during that sequence yeah. with a monstrous looking chest person and they were influenced by that and what you see in the movie is different but the trilobite is still the long tomorrow. And I like it. I like it. But it's the heavy metal magazine kind of aesthetic. You know, the bizarre, the cyberpunk, the pulp cyberpunk, or ray punk, or atom punk, you know, all those distinctions. You know what I mean without bringing up semantics. I like it. But again, it's this disjunction because the intention of the movie is to be philosophical, serious and stuff. It's not to be whimsical. This is whimsical. And it's good. It's not a bad thing. But it's disjunct from... You know, the, I'm looking down on you, and this is philosophical and deep kind of, you know, mentality of the movie that I find so abrasively irritating to my brain, you know? And that's it. Another rant. (laughs) We haven't talked about one of the elements of the movie I really like, actually, too much, and that is the spaceship itself, called the Prometheus, or it was formerly called the Magellan. But I thought that thing was so cool, what they did with that. I mean, I could always kind of buy that it was more advanced with the whole justification of this is the science vessel flagship of the Wayland fleet. And that was like a tugboat and that we saw an alien, you know. So that wasn't too difficult for me. Now, there were elements that did feel like you said, Eric, veering more towards the Star Trek, towards the Mass Effect, where you're like, maybe let's tone that down a little. 
but there were still very recognizable design elements from Alien. Even as the ship is about to ram the Juggernaut, we see the very briefly we see like the Alien warning graphics on the screens. You know, just like the self-destruct sequence in Alien, it was based on that. What they did with the spacesuits, and Scott would expand on that a bit more in his movie The Martian, where he also had very practical kind of spacesuits meant for hiking around a, a planet. The production design, doing so much of that practically and building those sets and, and the ship and having it move around and everything, like there was so much that was done well with that spacecraft. And that was one of the most compelling things for me about that was just like the Nostromo, we had this very interesting looking spacecraft landing on this planet doing these explorations. Yeah, so that that's a big positive of the movie for me was just so much of it takes place within this spacecraft and seeing the spacecraft fly to this planet, like some of the sh my favorite shots in the movie are just the spacecraft seeing how tiny it is approaching this planet. And even when we first see it, like we've never really had a good look at faster than light travel in the alien universe, but we see it as this speck moving across space so quickly. So it kind of gives us a sense of how really fast it's moving, even though we don't get that sense when we're just examining it as it flies by. So I don't know. How do you, how do you guys feel about the spaceship in the film? I agree with you in that I've always brought that it's this advanced, you know, it, it quite clearly is the the iPod, the latest generation of, of space travel. And, and that accounts for why the, you know, the Nostromo looks like a beat down piece of shit. You know, I, I, I've seen people still running Windows XP. So yeah, I, I get old stuff still being in use. But with Alien, it's one of the things you guys know, I love Star Trek. I love spaceships. But with Alien, it's, it's never really been a part of the sh series that I'm really drawn to, you know, outside of the derelict, that is. Really? Alien has such yeah. cool ships, though, man. Like, I'm always, like, human or engineer. Like, I'm always curious about the difference. I, li I like the dropship and I like the, the derelict. And, and that's that's about the extent of it. You know, I don't find much in the Prometheus or, or the Nostromo or the Sulaco or the Origa or the Bay that I'm like, yeah, damn, this is cool. But that's just me. You know, I give me the other hardware, you know, give me the pulse rifle, give me the armor, give me the smart gun and, and the incinerators and stuff like that. And I'm all about it. But not not actual ships. Yeah, I'm, I'm different with you there because with any new piece of alien media i'm like what is the spaceship gonna look like just because they're so different and unique from each other from alien to aliens alien 3 unfortunately didn't have its own unique ship but then to alien resurrection with the Auriga and then the prometheus you can have and the yeah, Evie, I guess. That, that, that would be its contribution, yeah. Where the parachutes don't open on it. You had one job. <laughs> yeah, for real, right? But even between Prometheus and Covenant, seeing the differences of design language between the more utilitarian Covenant and the more science and sleek Prometheus, like that's one of the things that's drawn me to Alien, you know, significantly is the ship design. And how, and how the spaceships function and work and travel through this universe. But speaking of the ships, though, actually seeing the... It's obviously, it's not the derelict, but seeing the juggernaut, you know, actually fly and move and not do much, but, you know, actually, <laughs> you know, even, even on the docking pad, goddamn, that was yeah. gorgeous. Yeah. And the opportunity to actually see it doing something other than lying there crashed, I thought was fantastic. Finally seeing it rise and start to fly off mm -hmm. was, was quite awesome gorgeous. in the theater. Yeah. And like the Ori scene as well, you know, speaking inside of it, you know, I, I've complained about it being more mechanical than bio, but I did like a lot of the interior sequences, you know, the Ori scene in particular, I think is one of the best visual sequences in the franchise. I like the engineer holograms, actually. I like that ghostly um, aesthetic to how everything looked. 
Yeah. Even in that scene, I was listening to Ridley Scott's commentary, which Ridley Scott's commentary, man, in the last couple of movies, he's, he is a he, he narrates one. the film. He just narrates <laughs> what's happening on the film. It's, yeah, it's not interesting. But one of the things I thought was, I think it's interesting. I think it's just fun, but, but some alcohol may be required. But one of the things I found interesting he was saying is in the hologram scene where you see the engineers prepare to take off, he says, well, we see now they're not gods, they're pilots. And so I did think that the hologram sequences with that one in particular was quite interesting. But going to what you were saying, Eric, it just gets so frustrating when we see like them just go instantly psychotic and they want to kill us all because of a single interaction. I mean, we get more of that with a deleted scene. But even that, it begs the question, well, why do they want to kill us 2000 years ago? Like this, that's a significant question. Shaw goes off to get her answers that we'll never have. So it always leaves this frustrating head scratching thing with that. I had a little theory in there while watching the film recently was David's line, to create first you must destroy. And it kind of made me think perhaps it wasn't so much the black goo being intended to wipe us out so much as it was we were the delivery for whatever they were doing next. And that 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 was that was just a little something I thought up there was we were just a big farm for whatever the pathogen was going to do next. Well, that kind of goes against Covenant with its deployment. They, the they wouldn't need it. to trash our ecosystem. They'd have their own place for doing that, though, because it would trash our entire planetary ecosystem. I don't think they care about that. If if they're world builders and people builders, I mean, even that. I mean, I know where that quote comes from. Since it's apparently from Hegelian dialectics, which goes into the origins of communism. Communism, where it was this whole thing about to create, you must first destroy, and and even Nietzsche was very anti-communist back then. He was pointing out, well, you can have an egg gets destroyed to be a chicken, but he says there are loads of things where you destroy them, you do not create anything good. You can destroy seeds, you can destroy a lot of things, but you cannot create from them. So in your very specific niche where you can apply that logic. The problem with that whole thing is whatever it was, they wanted to trash our entire ecosystem. And you saw in the scene where he woke up, he's clearly got a big old grudge against humanity. Or he's become psychotic because he slept so long, which is a possibility. Well, that's another thing you wonder about is why did they go to sleep before they took off? If they weren't in distress, maybe they put one to sleep and then the distress happened or something like that. That goes to the Spate script where there was a reason, because it woke up and it was trying to escape getting infected and the crew unintentionally affected and it was pissed off because the whole reason of it hibernating was it wanted to avoid being infected, whereas in But it didn't want to kill us all in Spate script, right? They were delivering aliens to kill us. Hmm. Yeah, that's it. But here, you don't get that. It just angry, grr, kill you. There are elements in the movie that point you to that concept because... Again, this is all from behind the scenes interviews, but the idea was that Jesus was either an engineer or a product of the engineers designed to help humanity and we crucified them and they were pissed at us for killing him. And this is not in the movie, but there are a lot of kind of funky Christian mockery in the movie because you have a Christmas tree and by going to the movie's timeline according to the intentions, I don't remember clearly, but I think the deacon is uh, supposed to be born on the 25th of December by their timeline. I remember reading something like that I'm not entirely sure, but what I am sure about is that the deacon is deliberately called deacon because it mocks a deacon's hat. And this is interesting. This is fun, actually, because back to the original alien, we also had Christian mockery with the egg. 
because the egg was originally a vulva. And then Ridley Scott was like, oh my God, this looks obscene. And, you know, they made fun of it because, you know, you're going around with that three foot dickhead on your fucking ship and you get, you know, obscene with the female looking thing. You know, it was, it's very fun to read about. But what's interesting is Giger's solution to it because they were worried that, that such an imagery would be offensive to Christian countries. And Gears said, you know, Christian countries love to look at crosses. And thus was born the four petal design. And I find that brilliant and so funny because you may or may not have gotten this from my comments, but I'm very anti-clerical philosophically. And this is fun. And they kept that with Prometheus. I love the idea behind it. But circling back to the spaceships, which is a very interesting subject. I agree with Adam, the spaceship stuff in the Alien series is immense design-wise. We had Ron Cobb, we had Chris Foss. We had these brilliant designs from the fourth movie too. I mean, we had the Nostramo, the Gateway from Aliens, the Narcissus, the Sulaco, the Origa, the Betty, the Jackhammer ship, and the Origa was the Cathedral ship. And the Prometheus, ships I love. I really like the Prometheus actually. It's transformative elements because he has these double thrusters on each side and you have these kind of gimbals that move them. So it allows to shift the configuration in order for it to land. I like that stuff because it's the same philosophy of transformative elements that the Sulaco had with the dropship because the dropship kind of, you know, folds open. So you have this kind of transformative elements in some of the designs. And I love the Prometheus stuff. I love of the aesthetics, they're kind of problematic continuity-wise because, again, let's assume the universe of Alien is different from ours, of course, but I have a kind of a hard time believing that the Nostromo still had MS-DOS <laughs> and the Prometheus had everything, you know. I find it hard to believe a little bit, even with, you know, what Arian saying, which is true. I still see people with Windows XP in workstations because it's cheaper, but I still find it problematic. And, you know, I'm listening on replay and listening on stuff, but I immensely respect the way the effects are photographed into the movie. I may disagree with Ridley creatively, but he's still Ridley fucking Scott. I have immense respect for the guy and immense respect for the aesthetics he wants to bring out. And Prometheus is an excellent example of production design done really well. You know, the sets, again, I personally artistically disagree with the intention behind the sets, but they're beautiful sets. They're incredible sets. And, you know, the, the fact that you guys say, this should be seen in 3D, I never have, I never will, because I'm not interested. It really does bring it to, the visual element in this movie really elevates it a little bit. And it's one of those movies where, you know, it's one of the movies I define as the party movie. You have a party at your house and there's movies playing in the background. And this is one of those movies that, you know, should play in the background during a party because there's a lot of very cool visuals and the ships are part of it. And I also love, you know, the interiors of Vika's... Her lifeboat. I love the imagery of, you know, Vika's entertaining herself with this peaceful imagery. You know, the, the girl playing the violin when the engineer approaches Shaw in the deleted scene. And I think it's also in the theatrical cut. Yes, it is. But, you know, you see the engineer, you know, looking at the girl playing the violin in the deleted scene. 
that was another the latest scene that I, I did, don't know why they caught it. Yeah, I I preferred that scene where Shaw has more of a confrontation with the engineer yes. as opposed to her just hitting the button and it gets taken by the trilobite. Because you see moments where it's genuinely curious. It picks up a book and it looks at yeah, it. Yeah, that moment brilliant. is really interesting. It's all the editing. It's Scott's desire to get it down to that two hour mark. Fuck all yeah. the bits of yeah. character or or wonder that might be involved in there. Yeah, but just give us an extended cut then. I still think the movie should. Should have one. Now, it is interesting, though. I feel like some of the deleted scenes do help flesh out the film a bit more, like the scene between Vickers and Yannick. But there's other scenes where the characters are just even more assholes to each other that they reshot. Like, I think they reshot the Shaw and Holloway scene because they, they kind of get into a physical fight. That whole vibe is just so weird. Like, did you did you watch the screen tests? Mm-hmm. So um, in in one of the screen tests, it's it's her and Raph Spall as as Holloway, and they do that iteration of, of the conflict, but it feels a lot less abusive in in the screen in the screen test bit yeah. because like the whole them getting together in the deleted scene and starting to kiss, it just feels very off putting, and the entire dynamic just feels like an abusive relationship that doesn't work. And I'm so glad they cut that bit. It was ridiculous. That was the ones I think the alternate scene works less well, yeah. I I agree with what you guys said. And this circles back to my problem with the Spites-Lindelof duel right in this. Because one of the things I find, because I remember reading the scripts. I remember Damon Lindelof calling for prose in the scripts. I remember distinctly this part where I think it was David looking into Wayland's dreams. And the Wayland dream mentions, and I directly quote from the script, escorts that ooze sex. I think it was a super young. That's Lindelof. That's, that's Lindelof. Lindelof. No, 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 that's Lindelof. But the same vibe is, is in the Spites stuff. Because Spites writes women terrifically bad. Terrifically bad. And, and it's stereotyped and it's sophomoric and it's where it's, again, the edgy 14-year-old guy with full hormones raging writing a woman. But in Prometheus' case, they pretended to be intellectual. And, you know, the relationship with, between Holloway and Shaw is one of those that I don't really like about the movie script-wise. Because of what you guys say, it's clearly a problematic relationship in a way. Holloway is a problematic kind of person, but the movie never ever highlights it. We're just supposed to go with it, which is intensely wrong, also because the movie wants to be smart. You, you want your smart movie, you don't give me stuff like this. <laughs> yeah. You don't. The other deleted scenes, though, as well, like the scene where Shaw's putting David's head in the bag and she's like, you're a fucking robot. Yeah, like, she's a dick to him there. And then you also have the extended scene between Vickers and Wayland, which is kind of funny because it starts off and he's like, the last thing you said, I was some fool for going going off to do this. And she's like, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that. But by the end of their conversation, <laughs> she's like, I can't wait for your last godforsaken breath. It's like, wow, that apology was pretty short lived there. So some of the deleted scenes do work better than others. I would like to see an extended cut. I know there's a fan cut that I heard them talking about on the Xenomorphic podcast, one of them. Ridley Scott was offered. They wanted Ridley Scott to do an extended one because they knew they would be able to get more money because it's another version of the film. He refused. So he had the opportunity. They wanted to pay him for it, and he re- he didn't want to make an. He just don't call it a director's cut. Well, whatever it is, he <laughs> he is happy with the one that's out there. He wants yeah. that to be it. 
Are we done? I don't think I could take <sighs> much more of this. Prometheus, man. See, that's the thing. Like, I knew we were going to go three hours on this one. Like, this is a movie that you do have to talk about. And there's, we could keep going. We could probably go for another two hours here talking about Prometheus. And it'd just be more complaining. They'd be like, the occasional bit of, oh, I like this, interspersed with half hour of why a certain subject sucks balls. But yeah, I think I've had enough. Again, it's... 10 years, man, it feels crazy that that much time is, has gone on. And it still gets this kind of reaction from all, all of us. Yeah. <laughs> well, all of us on on this particular screen or in, in your ears right now. But yeah, I mean, it's a de- divisive film. And obviously there's people out there who aren't going to agree with us at all. There are going to be a lot of them. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I've, there were some fans, I'm sure that was their introduction into the fandom, you know. Well, and same, had... same as AVP, you know, the, each each new block of films comes with a new generation of people that might not have been aware. And I've had a few like really cool moments too. When I went to that Alien 40th anniversary exhibit and I saw one of those engineer suits in person. And when I, I went to the Peterson Automotive Museum in LA and I saw that actual rover that was in the movie, I'm like, damn, the production design for this movie was so good. So going back, there's things I can really appreciate it and I can go back and watch it. Unlike The Predator, I think that's probably the the least inviting repeat viewing movie in all the franchises. But Prometheus and Covenant, I can always return to and I can always be fascinated with. As frustrated as I am with them, I can always be fascinated and find things to enjoy Mm -hmm. about both of them. So credit to Scott for that, at least. It's, it's just a shame that when you sit down to think and discuss or talk, is those elements are always just overshadowed, which, which sucks, but it is what it is. So would it be fair to sum up our collective viewpoint of this film as beautifully shot nonsense? <laughs> I mean, that seems yeah. to be our collective view here. Nonsense is an insult to nonsense because nonsense can be great. And this is bad nonsense. Well, I'm just thinking in terms of like this, see, it's mostly about logic problems. So David loathes this film, I think is quite yeah. clear. Whereas I, I think the rest of us don't aren't quite on that level. But yeah, it's like a love hate thing with me. Well, maybe not even love. Maybe it's like a appreciate slash hate kind of thing. I, I'm sorry for what might be perceived as excessive energy, but I'm having fun, first of all, doing this because I like to talk about these things. And this is a very particular movie for me. Again, it's when the evil planets align and they align very rarely for me. And most recently, they aligned with the Jurassic World movie. And after Prometheus, they aligned for it, you know, the 2017 movie. And I play on this a lot. You know, I play kind of humoristically on it, on my disdain for the movie. The truth that I don't care anymore about the movie, (laughs) I will leave it to rot in my memories and that's it that's it basically because again it is a movie it is a movie i don't like it is a movie i'm not forced to accept into my own canon which in a series like the alien series is not is not that defined it's not that clean because there's a lot of you know retcons you have to do you, you have to do mental gymnastics to fit everything together if you want but you know i simply say i don't have to watch it i don't have to continue this story day. i don't have to read this book if you get what i mean you know and i'm also very intense on you know the stuff i don't like but i have immense respect for many people that worked on the movie. The special effects, you know, the practical stuff was done by Neil Scanlan studio and they did an amazing, an amazing job with the stuff. 
the visual effects were done by NPC Weta. NPC as well. NPC, I think double negative, and and I think Framestore. Framestore is one of my favorite, you know, CGI houses, as is Weta, and they do a lot of great stuff. So there's a lot of great artistry that went into this movie. Artistry that I respect and I love. I love the Hamepi Day, the design, the puppets, the CGI. The effects of it regenerating, they look so, you know, good. And the trilobite, the trilobite is brilliant. I love it so much. I love the blinking vaginas it has around that, you know, hagfish looking. There's a lot of interesting stuff. Neville Page is a great creature designer. He did the avatar creatures, you know, the icon or banshee, whatever, they, they're his. He did the Cloverfield monster. He did the Super 8 monster. There's a lot of great stuff in Neville Page design. So there's a lot of artistry that I respect. Again, we've talked negatively about Ridley Scott's negative, what we perceive as negative choices, you know, the wrong creative choices. There's still choices that we disagree with, essentially. And, you know, no matter how I'm dissing on Ridley <laughs> for this, but I still love the guy. I oh, still yeah. love the energy he has. The fact that he's still doing stuff is amazing. Even after what happened to him, I might remind you guys that he had a very, as an artist and as a person, he had a very difficult period. For his brother. During those times, because the movie he did before Prometheus was The Counselor, which is another very interesting movie to see because it's a movie I really don't like. But during that production, he suffered great loss. It's a, it is his personal stuff, but, you know, it has to affect him somehow. So I feel a little bit the bad guy when I say, you know, Ridley did this and I didn't like it. It's like I'm disrespecting him. I'm not. I'm just disagreeing with the choices. And I still, you know, I loved the, the other stuff that came out. I look forward to seeing Raised by Wolves which is essentially what he wanted to do with the prequels, but couldn't. Uh, and, you know, by erasing the alien connection, he's allowed to do the stuff. And I'm looking forward to it. I loved all the money in the world. It was shot in my city <laughs> as a nice bit of trivia, but it was a great movie, great Ridley Scott movie. He can still do stuff. The Martian was fucking great. It's just Prometheus. It's just coalescence of... Stuff that I am very, very much against creatively and artistically and that I just have to disagree with. Now, I have this energy. I want to have fun. I want to be entertaining about the things I want to talk about. But the truth is, we've been very negative about this. We've been turning this movie apart and I've never been happier. <laughs> but again, if you are listening to this podcast and you are one of those people that likes Prometheus, we're not looking down on you. Unlike certain people <laughs> that we have referred to, we're just expressing our views on it, which are very well constructed and researched. And, you know, that's it. That's my closing word, because I didn't want people to think, you know, I'm just, you know, hating on Ridley Scott or something. No, I still have immense respect for Ridley Scott, you know, and it was cool that he had an avenue with Raised by Wolves to just kind of go nuts with his weird sci-fi. I don't know how much of that's actually his, though, because I understood it was very much Aaron What's-His-Face's show, the showrunner. Was there a primary writer with it? I mean, it yeah. did very much become attached to his name and everything with the, the producing, and he directed some as well. Yeah, the first three, I think it was. So, yeah. And to be fair, I, I do think it, I do recommend that show, even though it's dead as doornail now from the looks of it. It doesn't look like any of the Renew Raised by Wolves stuff has gone down. But it's very much worth a watch. Very interesting. But on that, then, let's wrap up. 
sorry, this podcast has gone the way it's gone. But as always, if you want to check out the hub of our activity is at avpgalaxy.net. There are forums, uh, old school message boards where it's actually organized. So you can come and join in with fellow alien and predator and Prometheus enthusiasts <laughs> on there. <laughs> It's where the news drops, written editorial pieces. And if you're not watching this on YouTube, um, head on over to our YouTube page as well, where there are video versions of the podcast, video versions of the editorial pieces that are on the website. And we also do mini sort of podcasts, I guess, for the news, significant news that's come out. And we generally stream every, every Sunday. Adam and I will be streaming some Alien or Predator game as well. And we're also on all the socials, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us as Alien vs. Predator Galaxy versus as in VS dot or simply AVP Galaxy. You'll find me personally on Twitter at underscore Corporal Hicks. And you'll even see my uh, my rewatch chain of thoughts on Prometheus as I was watching it um, last week. Although it'll be weeks ago as, as of publishing this, but yeah, it's on there if you scroll through. If you'd like to follow me personally, it's just at RidgeTop21 on both Instagram and Twitter. I administrate, you know, the Monster Legacy blog. You can find it at monsterlegacy.net. It also got a Facebook and a Instagram page. I would also like to do a shout out to my friends, Dominic Coxa of Alien Explorations. The research he did on all the Alien movies and on Prometheus has been crucial to my own research and my own building of my opinion and my knowledge of these movies. The same goes to Seanad Kennedy, aka Valaquen on our forums. And I also want to shout out to those artists that did the Space Jockey fan art because I found their names. There's Daryl Joyce, the poster painter, and there's Doug Williams, the concept artist, the Neil Blomkamp guy. Notice me, Neil Blomkamp, wasn't that his handle? Please look at me, Neil Blomkamp, which I found, you know, exhilarating. And that's it. That's it. I had a lot of fun in this. I think the Daryl Joyce fan arts for the jockey were always some of my favorites. Yes, they influenced my own version of the jockey because I liked the legless silhouette. Because you remove the legs, it's immediately not a space elephant going. Mm -hmm. And it's that simple. You remove the legs. <laughs> it's such a simple thing to do. And none of the, the, the creative directions went there because they were, you know, they wanted this human thing. And the fans went, you know, they couldn't have done something that, that didn't look alive, which is... Okay, but before we go <laughs> on again... <laughs> I was going And uh, we don't bother asking Eric these days. Thank you, everybody, for listening or watching. Um, as always, as well, if you are watching or listening on a platform that allows you to leave a review or a comment, please do. It helps on all the algorithm bullshit that we have to deal with in this world. If you are somebody who hates Prometheus, please feel free to share this with other people who hate Prometheus. <laughs> if you are somebody who please loves do. Prometheus, please, do. please tweet David oh, sorry. with your hatred <laughs> and, and leave it at that. He can take all the air for that. This is Corporal Hicks, Ridgetop, Omega Morph, Xenomorphine, and we are still searching.